You're listening to Girls Gone Canon, covering his dark materials. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads, the His Dark Materials book series, episode 16, The Amber Spyglass, chapters 1 through 3. I am one of your hosts, Eliana. And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe, and oh my god, it's so sad, it's the third book! No. Ah! What happened? Hello! Hello everyone, welcome, we're here. Can't believe we're here, I'm actually really sad to be here, for multiple reasons, but it's just, I don't know, it's it's a fun journey, It's it's a book series that I grew up with, and to be finishing it again with all of you... It's been a fun, it's been a fun ride, and I'm not ready for it to be over. I know it, I know we have time, but like it feels like the start of the end, which kind of is. To be fair, it's not really over, right, if it's in your heart. That's true. We can always come back to these books and... We can. Well, it's been a tremendous 15 episodes with you, Eliana, and I'm looking forward to the next several episodes. Uh, we... we- do have it to a science. I think we know how many episodes it'll be, but we're not going to jinx ourselves. You know, you never know if we need one more at the end. So yeah, we'll let you know. I will say, but uh, for now, three chapters isn't bad to start off with. It's a good holy number, and you know, I will say that our hope is to have it done right before season three of the His Dark Materials tele- television show starts, which is kind of the pace that we've been keeping with the other few books and. That would be awesome, but who knows? Yeah, and we might pull some crazy shenanigans to make it happen. (laughs) We might just make it happen. I think uh, Series 2, we were pretty close. We were butt up there pretty close in finishing, and Series 1, we, like, raced to the finish line. We were like, oh, oh, here's the first couple episodes as we finish the first book and uh, start the new series. So we'll see what happens this time, but I'm confident we'll finish it, and you know, before we get too far, we do want to talk about our spoiler policy for these books. Eliana, read us the riot act, the rules. <laughs> well, I'm sure that you can all assume that at this point in the book series, we are going to talk about everything that happened in Northern Lights slash The Golden Compass. We assume that you've read these if you're at this point, as well as also The Subtle Knife. I mean, the story doesn't make much sense. You could do it. You could do it. Just, like, pick it up, but it's not recommended. And we are going to- It's good, but is it that good? Yeah, I I just, <laughs> like, I think it's much stronger, you know, when you've read the first two books. It's, it's a lot stronger of a story. But we are going to try to be as uh, spoiler-free as possible. We're- we're not good. All right, we're gonna end up probably hinting at things that happen later in the book, but we are going to, you know, not, we're going to try to keep things that happen in everything that is after these chapters in the discussion. And what is a discussion, you're asking? <laughs> well, if you are new to Girls Gone Canon, let me have my, my moment, Eliana, my moment to shine. Eliana presents like the angel. She's all, here are the rules for you to get into Girls Gone Canon heaven. And I'm over here like, hey, kid, want to do drugs? Rock and roll. Uh, angel dust? The, the dust angel dust? 
The angel PCP. does. <gasps> no, not Jesus. Oh, we're already doing illicit drugs in the beginning of our first The Amber Spyglass episode, so you can imagine how well this is going to go for the rest of this trippy-ass novel. Uh, the dust discussion is where we spoil it all. The books of dust, the novellas, Eliana still hasn't finished The Secret Commonwealth. It's an epidemic. She'll get with it. And, uh... Also, the rest of the Amber Spyglass, right? So this is where I'm going to be huffing and holding my breath till we get to the discussion and be like, and then because of this thing later and blah, 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 and Elia is going to be like, blah, 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 back. It's going to be fun. So stay tuned. If you want to read at the same pace as us, if you're starting this novel for the first time, welcome. Again, as Eliana said, we will try very hard to keep it clean. I will try very hard to keep it clean. Yeah. We will try to... Yeah, keep it as undusty as possible. And as well as the discussion, you know, besides those books, there are, of course, novellas. And we are, for this month's Patreon episode, going to be talking about one of the novellas in this universe. Yeah, we'll be talking about The Collectors, which is really fun. It is an audio and ebook only story at this time in 2021 the summer of 2021 but and we will talk about it in this very special patreon episode that is available for our patrons in the five dollar tier and above the stranger tier and above over at patreon.com slash girls gone canon we'll be talking about this novella and the plans for it to become an actual physical copy of a book in the future and much more much more the conception of it and fun stuff in that episode yes so Keep an eye out for that this June, and then next month we will be back with an A Song of Ice and Fire episode on Patreon, for those of you who follow our coverage of that series. Yes, and of course you can expect these episodes, The Amber Spyglass, to release for public on a streaming platform near you. Make sure you hit subscribe wherever that is. Uh, every last Friday of the month, so every last Friday of the month, if you think about us, you know we'll be thinking about you. Oh, I see. You made the, the reference to the thing. From from different places. We'll be thinking about yeah, you. Yeah, we will. We will. Um, and, of course, if you want to join us, though, in different places and think about one another together, we do have a Discord on our Patreon. And once a month, we do a Patreon brunch slash happy hour on Discord using their video chat function. And... If you are listening to this episode, the date of release, which will be Friday, June 25th, you have a chance to join tomorrow, June 26th. Last minute, slip in there if you would like to join um, Gatecrash the... It's not really Gatecrashing, but whatever. <laughs> the Discord brunch slash happy hour. And it's a good time. Uh, we're probably going to get sad, you know. I mean, today is the summer solstice, which is significant for this book series. Yeah, it feels right. It feels important that we're starting this on the summer solstice, or at least recording it, recording it. Yeah, it really uh, does, to me. Yes. Well, it, I I think uh, a lot of the symbolism, a lot of the prose that the book even starts off with, and even before the story starts, right, Pullman opens it with a ton of poetry we're going to talk about in just a minute. It's a beautiful setting, fit really well for the summer solstice. It is. So... I mean, let's jump into it. There's actually different poems, I think, it seems, in different versions of the book that opens us up. Yes. 
different worlds, you know? I was just going to say, they mean different things in different worlds. Your world seems to be different from my world, Eliana. Yeah, I have a version of the book that does say, like, you know, copyright published in the United States, things like that. But I've noticed it keeps with some of the British conventions. Like, we don't have periods after the word misses. And I believe mm-hmm. we have U's in places that I would not expect a U, the letter U, in some spellings. <laughs> so, yeah. And in my version of the opening of the book, we have this excerpt from Hymns Ancient and Modern by Robert Grant. And the lines are, O tell of his might, O sing of his grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy space, his chariots of wrath, the deep thunder clouds form, and dark is his path on the wings of the storm. It's big Metatron feelings. Yeah, but at the same time, maybe Lord Asriel. Oh, also Lord Asriel. I'm over here like Stannis Baratheon. Oh my god. Just kidding. Wrong series. Uh, <laughs> uh. Yeah. It does have some Asriel feelings, uh, especially because something that I think is being driven home so much more when I reread this. This is what, my third reread, I think, now. And now that I'm rereading it, like, Asriel is presented as another option of not quite good, right? He's also causing evil things to happen. No no side. It's not one-sided. War is never Mm one-sided. People bleed on both sides, as we talk about in the other series we cover, A Song of Ice and Fire. Asriel is flawed, though he is very burdened. He is also flawed. And I think that does get explored a little better than maybe I felt previously. Yeah, and I'm excited to dig into that, this book. And I agree. I mean, like, that's so, it's so funny that this feels like it can be both of them, because I think you're absolutely right that it does feel very much like Metatron, you know, with the very clearly robe is light, canopy space, angelic language the chariot yeah and the chariot i mean we're going to talk about the chariot in like i don't know a few minutes later this episode but the fact that it's chariots of wrath and then like the storm and darkness and stuff is what makes me think oh it could also be asriel like i i love that it's a little ambiguous the way that he's chosen these poems and we know we know philip loves his poetry i will say something that struck me as interesting from this hymn so this part that's quoted is the second verse of the hymn but in the fourth verse of the hymn is this language of frail children of dust and feeble as frail. In you do we trust, nor find you to fail. Your mercies, how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. Feels pointed. Frail children of dust. In you do we trust. Indeed. Lyra will. Lyra. (sighs) Lyra. So this is one that I'm also interested in, obviously. If you have tuned into us before, you've heard us talk about William Blake at length. Sometimes, if you're following us on Twitter, you might see me shitposting, quote, retweeting the William Blake bot account. It could happen. <laughs> Free Lycra. This is from America, a Prophecy by William Blake. The morning comes, the night decays, the watchmen leave their stations, The grave is burst, the spices shed, the linen wrapped up, the bones of death, the covering clay, the sinews shrunk and dried, reviving shake, inspiring move, breathing, awakening, spring like redeemed captives when their bonds and bars are burst. Let the slave grinding at the mill run out into the field, 
Let him look up into the heavens and laugh in the bright air. Let the enchained soul, shut up in darkness and in sighing, whose face has never seen a smile in thirty weary years, rise and look out. His chains are loose, his dungeon doors open, and let his wife and children return from the oppressor's scourge. They look behind at every step and believe it is a dream, singing, The sun has left his blackness and has found a fresher morning. And the fair moon rejoices in the clear and cloudless night, for empire is no more, and now the lion and wolf shall cease. Wow, so it's in the Song of Ice and Fire. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's interesting that it seems like your copy of the book has this. Pullman chose this. Yeah. For the, and I'm reading from, I think, the UK publication. Yeah, I have a reprint of, like, later, because mine has lantern. Mm -hmm. Yours has lantern slides also, though. I don't know. Yes, but it has different. Uh, mine had a few different ones, oh, that's I right. than yours when we checked in, remember? So it's the same yeah. thing, different publications. And yours has the Robert Grant, so this is only in this UK. It's the Omni print. I have an Omni one that is just, I, I think it's just, like later and but at the same time has something that was taken out i don't i don't know how they decide these things like the part where there's that human who has a human demon yeah. like in the first book anyway so yeah i i this one's really really pointed to be at the beginning of this book in your version yeah america a prophecy i mean the lion and wolf imagery you you joke it reminds you of the song of ice and fire and it does a little bit but Lyra's actually described as tawny in her hmm. hair color, like a tawny lion in this first chapter. So I felt that might be even a little pointed to that she's a lion. And if that comes from her father, who mm -hmm. has a other wild cat demon, Stelmaria, leopard. Yeah. And I mean, a lot, a lot of the language here, right? Even though William Blake is sort of building his own mythology it feels very biblical, right? Like about the lion and the wolf laying down with one another. And, you know, what I got from this poem, because I went to take a look at it, is I was like, damn, William Blake had some real high hopes for America. And he got let down pretty quickly. <laughs> he was like, oh. It happens to the best of us, Blake. Yeah, he was like, oh, so wait, they're not going to free the slaves? Which, as you can see in these very lines that were picked out, clearly Will William Blake had a had a stance on that and no i'm sorry william blake but as you said mood um but the language is interesting he he turns america into this kind of mythology that he's building and channels some of those very explicit ideas of albion which is something that we discussed much more in depth in our coverage of la belle sauvage where that's kind of like woven into the story very explicitly but the language here has like portrays America as this like rebellion, which which is not untrue, and talks about the thirteen angels, you know, the thirteen original colonies. That's not how I would ever talk about the thirteen original colonies. But I like I like Blake's imagination and that's why we remember and talk about him all these years later and not me. And <laughs> <laughs> read within just <laughs> Blake's text, though, uh, the way that he's built up this mythos just channels, I think, that vibe of what Pullman is going for with Asriel, right? Um, talking about, and this sort of glorification of that rebellion and the rebel angels, right? The 13 angels are these rebel angels. That's really great. Even down to, like, the beginning being all of this destruction wrought and this oppression wrought on the land and mm -hmm. the people. 
and that reviving shake, inspiring move, breathing, awakening, like the angels of old coming to life because they have purpose. Yeah. Sorry yeah. sorry about what happened, William Blake. <laughs> and I'm sorry we laughed at it now. <laughs> we're allowed to laugh, laugh at it because we're living it. Uh, he wasn't even American. Yes. Yeah, fuck off, William Blake. Our life's hard enough. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm sure he's a fine guy. He wrote very well. Yeah, and I mean, <sighs> he clearly had his heart in the right place. That's why he got let down. Yeah, but I mean, there's also... I guess that is the hint of the story as a whole in broad terms, too. Like, it is very what we owe to each other. Mm. Very Scanlan, very, like humans believe in the best in each other and sometimes you get let down by a human and that shakes your entire psyche because you want to mm. believe people can do good and people can be good and be more than themselves and selfless and you know special and sometimes you get let down in that and sometimes systemically you get let down in that over and over again for hundreds of years in that sometimes it starts to feel like it's insanity actually and we're going to explore that in this story we are. We are. <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> We're fine. Summer solstice. We're fine. Um, yeah, William Blake. Uh, the next poem in the beginning is actually one of one of my favorites. I love really? Rilke. I, I love Rilke a lot now. Yep, I, I've read a lot of Rilke. I'm more of a Dickinson girl, but... Well, Rainer Maria Rilke had a, had a crazy longer name. It's Rene Carl Wilhelm hmm. Johann Josef uh, Maria oh. Rilke. Yeah, oh. so Rainer Maria Rilke. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that didn't stop. That kept going. No, it kept. It keeps going. He was a Bohemian Austrian poet and novelist. He is one of the most lyrically intense German language poets. Uh, he was around. He was born 1875 to 1926. That that kind of you know time. A little before us. A little hint before us. Uh, but he put out in the Duino elegies, there are 10 elegies total, and I'm going to talk about a couple of mm. them, but the third elegy is quoted in the beginning of this. Oh, stars, isn't it from you that the lover's desire for the face of his beloved arises? Doesn't his secret insight into her pure features come from the pure constellations? So that's from the third elegy. It hurt. It hurt. I mean... Just letting you all know right off the bat, even though if you are here and you haven't read the whole book yet, just know that this is this has gutted me. <laughs> you could turn back, you know, I mean. Yeah, you could all stop. If you are listening now, I just wanted you to know that Girl Scout Cannon pled with you. They were like, please, please don't hurt yourself. Don't do what we've done to ourselves. Don't get sad over this story. We cried. We pleaded, but nope, you had to keep reading, and so did we. I was crying just thinking about the ending today, you know, preparing for this episode, so. <sighs> so it's real sad. And these poems, these elegies, are also very sad. But, so <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Rilke wrote these about beauty and existential suffering, basically. So also good. Also good. 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 Exciting. <laughs> The first elegy is about suffering. The poet calls to the angels for help and concludes that angels and their power and beauty is beyond human comprehension. If he ever encountered one, he would be destroyed by it. And then he counters, but angels are also terrible, but maybe earthly. 
right? Like, they made the things of the earth so they could be great. Man, animal, lovers, these things can console me in the wake of these horrible magical angels. But then the only thing that consoles him, of course, at the end of this poem are songs born out of sadness, which that's also a mood. In the second elegy, the mysteries of the angels transformed the difference between man and angel, hmm. how humans die, and how humans get to leave something behind, like a gravestone and the idea of love hmm. and parting that gravestones symbolize. Elegy three is the metamorphosis of love, boys becoming men, leaving home, leaving their mother, and the love of a good woman keeping a man busy and giving balance to their life. Hmm. Right, very interesting, very interesting. That's a thought. And those are just the first three, but in the very last, the tenth elegy, Rilke imagines what it's like to die and what it would be like if he died. He sings to the angels and discovers why human suffering exists and travels to the city of mourning, then to a place called the Land of the Griefs. Finally, he disappears, regretful he can't relate this experience of dying to the living, but as he travels down the river of joy, he sees a final vision of spring, huh, a dream of spring, oh, that gives same. him hope. I think Rilke's elegies are a great way to open this story poetry-wise. That part of the third elegy is very pointed. It's obvious what it's about if you've read the story. But at that same time, all of these elegies kind of correspond with a lot of Will's role in the story, right? Encountering angels, finding solace in friendship with Lyra friendship, wink, wink, uh, and the underworld and a lot of these different elements and his own land of the griefs that he'll have to face. But just like the final elegy after seeing what it's like, right, in this tragic world, he ends up helping others in the end. And I think that's what's probably the most important part in that piece of hope that Rilke saw in these poems. Absolutely. And I mean, these sound these sound great. Like this sounds like a wonderful like journey through all of these, and we are going through quite the journey here. And I like how you've talked about like the different transformations and how each of them sort of meditate on a different idea. Yeah, different aspects. Yeah, and some of them seem. I, I'll have to check these out. I mean, some of them seem very pointed, right, to what we're going to see, or like yeah. very much like they inspired how some ideas are approached in this book. Well. Finally, Pullman gives us a an excerpt from The Ecclesiast by John Ashbery. Find vapors escape from whatever is doing the living. The night is cold and delicate and full of angels, pounding down the living. The factories are all lit up. The chime goes unheard. We are together at last, though far apart. The fuck? What the fuck? <laughs> Rude. It it's is. really rude. Some fucking. This is really a test. This is some fucking fievel somewhere out there. Some look an American tale shit. Is, if you didn't see the signs or the graffiti that we told you about, the go back now. This is your last chance. Go back now. Pain is ahead. Everything hurts. This is rude. This is the Ecclesiast by John Ashbery, and there's something interesting here. There's a connection even to vapors in the Ecclesiast versus mm -hmm. the vapors in the Songs of Innocence and Experience from William Blake, mm -hmm. uh, like in Little Boy Lost, Little Boy Found. One of the stanzas before this in the Ecclesiast is also very haunting and very relatable. I feel like we have to bring it in here. 
There is no time like the present for giving in to this temptation. Once the harvest is in and the animals put away for the winter, to stand at the uncomprehending window cultivating the desert, with salt tears which will never do anyone any good. My dearest, I am as a galleon on salt billows, perfume my head with forgetting all around me. For some days these projects will return. The funeral voyage over ice-strewn seas is ended. You wake up forgetting, already. Daylight shakes you in the yard. The hands remain empty. They are constructing an osier basket. Just now and across the sunlight darkness is taking root anew in intense activity. You shall never have seen it just this way, and that is to be your one reward. What the fuck? Lots of sorrow. Yeah, lots of sorrow in these poems. How we all feeling? Everyone, everyone feeling excited, happy, not depressed. We haven't even started the chapters. (laughs) (laughs) Well, without further ado, let's start chapter one, Enchanted Sleeper. Which opens with another poem. <laughs> yeah, it opens from with an excerpt. You were talking about the songs of innocence and experience, and this one is from "Little Girl Lost" by William Blake, and it's a uh, it's pretty straightforward. This one's actually very literal to what we're gonna see in a second. Of while the beasts of prey come from caverns deep, viewed the maid asleep. It's because Lyra's asleep. She's the enchanted sleeper. Yes, very fanciful, very fairy tale. Mrs. Coulter had taken Lyra somewhere. So beautiful, full of prose, a valley shaded with rhododendrons, near snow with a milky stream. Sheltered by brush and trees, Marisa and Lyra camp in a cave. Oh, what a great bonding experience for mother and daughter, with constant drifting light and mist coming down through the trees. Yeah, the problem is they weren't fishing. You know, if they're going to go on a camping trip, she wasn't fishing. But the imagery here, it's such a great way. Like, the first page of the Amber Spyglass is just so good. The prose and the imagery are just top-notch. And, I mean, these first three chapters, everything about the opening of this book, I, I find to be really strong. But here the imagery is very idyllic, right? The The land is beautiful, and it sounds like a land of milk and honey, right? That stream is described as milky. It's very much like a promised land. It's very much like Eden, right? And we're about to see Lyra sent back to a time of infancy associated with innocence, of course, and that providence that comes with a mother's care, only if it's all turned on its head. We'll talk about it a little more later, but it's all false. It's like a pantomime of innocence and care that actually comes from stealing someone's choices and free will from them so you're saying that it's not a fun camping trip that's a spoiler it's because there's no fish just kidding (laughs) (laughs) Uh, of course the light is drifting down the light and mist very dusty right we immediately have a dust metaphor at the top of the chapter i love it and there's also something really symbolic about rhododendrons kind of peppering the path outside of this cave Rhododendrons are totally a danger-beware kind of plant. They were really popular in Victorian times, and people are known to get ill from eating honey Mm. that were made by bees that fed on rhododendron or azaleas. It's slightly hallucinogenic and also laxative in nature. Yeah, so basically very poisony, right? Like, you would probably feel pretty poisoned if you took it, which very symbolic of Coulter keeping Lyra asleep 
poisoning her. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that. Now I know that about rhododendrons and azaleas. Don't fuck with them. Admire. Do Don't not eat. eat. Yeah. See? We're, we're camping after all. Yeah, we could survive. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I don't know, Alia. I know us. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Coulter heats water over a naphtha stove, aka a gas stove, uh, when her demon murmurs a warning. A young village girl, Ama, is coming up the walk. She had been visiting and giving Mrs. Coulter and Lyra food for a while now, watching and lurking for a bit before approaching, and when Mrs. Coulter first arrived, she told them that she was a holy woman engaged in meditation and prayer. I thought this was an interesting play on her part. The Himalayan range is largely Buddhist, so I do wonder if this would be like a shamanka or a female practicing shaman or if she's a nun or monastic. I don't know how intentional this is on Pullman's part to care about exactly what they think. So we obviously don't get to hear if they think anything of her and if they think she's more than, I mean, we just hear that they think she's a medicine woman living in this cave and she's going to bring holy magic to them. Uh, but there's also like tons of institutional sexism involved in Buddhism for female monasts. Buddhist nuns didn't actually have a nunnery or an abbey to pray at at first. Mm. That was kind of a recent development in the last century. They were basically segregated and had their share of intense sexism displayed. And, like, to become a nun, they had to do eight steps more than what you would have to do otherwise just to be a regular monk and more regulatory rules to the practice and to be a leader in their communities. So it's really interesting because Coulter is trapped once more under these kind of norms mm. in this cave. But because she's on her own, that also shows a certain kind of danger we see from how they survey her like she could be dangerous if we cross her i mean i agree she is <laughs> she could be dangerous <laughs> and i i think that's interesting you know you were saying that like yeah she's still caught in that and i mean to some extent right that's sort of the point that it's so pervasive you know this patriarchal mm -hmm. systems in, in mrs Coulter's world in our world as well mm -hmm. and What's interesting is that she kind of leans on that same disguise that she's always using. It's just a different, like, version or shade of it, where yeah. Mrs. Coulter's again channeling religion and holiness as a costume to cloak her misdeeds. She did it before with the Magisterium, and now she's like, you know, whatever. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's, I really love comparing that to Mary Malone, right? Mm. Who was a nun. Yeah, here we have Coulter pretending to be a holy woman in the sense of being a nun, and then we have Mary Malone actually later in the book on her journey as an ex-nun. That's absolutely true, and she's like, "That's not for me." <laughs> <laughs> well, this time the village girl Ama came with her father. He stays outside of the cave, and he sends his prayers, as well as a bundle of food with Amma that she places at Coulter's feet. She holds out a bunch of flowers, speaking rapidly and, and pretty nervously in a language that Coulter kind of understands, but Coulter's pretending she doesn't understand, and she motions the girl to watch their demons talk. Yeah, I mean, I feel that. The pretending you don't understand. And... The flowers that she brings to Mrs. Coulter are anemones, which, in the language of flowers, it has a bunch of different meanings, but some of the most popular ones mean, like, a forsaken love, which, interesting. Um, another one oh. is about a love that has been cut short due to death, usually. 
And though it's not romantic for Lyra, we're going to see it come up in this chapter, right? Right from the beginning. That's kind of what happened with her friendship with Roger. A love cut short. I mean, you know, the love of friendship. A friendship, yeah. Yeah. A friendship cut short. Foreshadowing, it feels like. I mean... Feels important. Yes and no. I mean, it already happened. Yeah. I mean, it's its own thing, too. Yeah, it's it, backshadowing. <laughs> backshadowing. But shadowing. But what? But I don't know. Damn. Well, Mrs. Coulter's monkey demon takes her butterfly demon, Amma's butterfly demon, on his forefinger and brings him to his ear. Coulter feels a stream of understanding enter her mind and clarity in what the girl meant. The villagers are so excited for a holy woman, but also it's rumored that she travels with a very powerful dangerous companion that makes the villagers afraid it's her she's the powerful dangerous companion (laughs) (laughs) but it is again talking about those same old tricks from mrs coulter and how she recycles them this is part of that too right and how she's just like consistently this pied piper figure luring children into her web being like oh don't you trust me me, nice woman yes. with the cool monkey demon. And I think that's part of what I think makes Mrs. Coulter such a fantastic character across all three books, right? Not only is she very well written, her character is very just like, I think, consistent in the way that mm-hmm. she's told and her arc is told. Yeah, and even that's in the other what books. makes this chapter so significant, right? That it's such a change for her character, like in, in path and trajectory because she's just confused and she doesn't really know what to do at this time Mm -hmm. so you find out like you think she's in some evil plot here that she's poisoning her daughter no it's just she's losing her mind and doesn't know what to do (laughs) right (laughs) you think it's evil (laughs) it is is, still it is evil but this is now like it's so second nature for her that even when she's like losing her mind in some ways and it's just like what if we did this yeah this comes so naturally to her right absolutely and i do have to go back to the the powerful, dangerous companion. I think it's so important that the villagers, I mean, I took that, that they're thinking of Lyra, that they hear she has a powerful, dangerous companion. And if they are so worried with a holy woman, I also think that this dangerous companion, which she then shows her, is just my daughter. You know, you see that it's Uh. just my daughter, harmless, asleep, she's ill. But that means they know of the prophecy or have heard something of the prophecy. And that means they believe in some sort of higher power, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be the authority, God, Jesus, whatever, Mrs. Coulter, but they believe that there is a higher power and mm-hmm. they have heard whisperings and rumors of it. Yeah, and and we do see that a lot of different cultures, right? I mean, the witches, right, have their different higher powers and religions mm-hmm. and... I mean, it's true. She kind of is a powerful, dangerous companion, too. They're they're both powerful and dangerous in different ways. It seems that they have their own secret commonwealth. Oh, well. Well, there's this line of what they're wondering of. They wanted to understand this other being. Master? Servant? Why were they here? When would they leave? <laughs> and uh, as you were saying, right? Mrs. Aliens. <laughs> when would they leave? <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, they're like, why does Ama keep feeding them? Anyways, Mrs. Coulter realizes, she's like, I have an answer for these questions. Um, As she figures out the words, and she's like, oh my god, I could tell the truth. 
And some of it, uh, she's like, some of it at least, right? Because, as we said, her instinct is all these, all these lies. She tells that her daughter is under a sleeping spell. She's come here to hide from the enchanter so that she can cure her daughter and keep her safe. This is the funniest shit ever because she's the enchanter, first of all. Right. Second of all, she's like, wait, I could just tell the truth? Oh my god, this is so fun for me. I never get to do that anymore. (laughs) This is new. This is different. (sighs) This is a different world. How funny. It's one of the funniest moments of the whole chapter. Yeah. She offers for Ama to see her daughter. And Ama's like, okay, she's kind of half soothed. The monkey's being super soft to her demon. So she's like, okay, okay, I'll come. I'll follow. Outside, on the path, her father kind of starts to step forward, but his crow demon rustles her wings, so he stays outside the cave, but he's very hesitant. He's like, maybe I should go in after her. Truly, yes, if your child is going into a cave with Mrs. Coulter, you should go in after your child. That's my expert advice. Mm. I say it as an expert, as a professional. Yeah, same. Yeah, same. I may not be a parent, but yeah, go there. <laughs> Accompany your kids. I think there's some redemption left for her, but honey, that's not for like 20 chapters, so let's keep going. <sighs> Coulter lights a candle and brings Ama to Lyra, asleep in the sleeping bag, older than Ama by three or four years. Her hair is a color Ama has never seen, like a lion's mane. And her mongoose-like demon is coiled against her throat, red gold and fur. The monkey demon tenderly smooths the fur between Lyra's demon's ears. I didn't realize it till now, but Ama thinks it looks like a mongoose because Pan's in his airmine form. Ama doesn't know because she doesn't have airmines in the Himalayas. Yeah, I like that. So I like duh. that. I didn't think huh. about that. I'm like, oh, duh, that's cool. Because I've kind of always wondered that, and and we kind of get that a little in the novella. I don't think this is that much of a spoiler with uh, Once Upon a Time in the North. What if you've never like seen an animal before? How are you? How do you know what kind of animal it how is? How do you know? And turns out it happens that you might get it wrong because Lee thought that his demon was the wrong kind of animal the whole time. I love that because later on in La Belle Sauvage, no spoilers, but that comes up again mm-hmm. between a demon and their human. So. Check that out for sure. Interesting. It's it's something I don't know if Pullman's ever gonna answer it. Answer it because uh, the answer has just been like I don't know. You just know. You just know. You know, like how you feel. I guess you just might not know the animal. You know, and mm-hmm. well, Ama's own demon right now. Ama's demon, mouse formed, pressed himself close to Ama's neck and peered fearfully through her hair, which makes no. sense. You should, and. Mrs. Coulter swears Ama to tell no one besides her father, and then insists there is no evil spirit, just her daughter, who must be kept safe. And she looks at Ama with sad, loving eyes and smiles at her with such brave compassion that tears well in Ama's eyes, and Mrs. Coulter holds her hand and walks her back to her anxiously awaiting father at the cave's entrance. Then she bows to him with her hands pressed together, and they leave amongst the rhododendrons. Oh, what a bullshitter. What an absolute grifter. You gotta respect her hustle. Yeah. You know, that's... I respect the hustle, honey. Commitment and... to the role. <laughs> commit to the bit and 
Again, that rhododendron uh, symbolism is very prominent as Ama and her father leave, bringing that poisoned, sweet but poisoned symbolism back in. Coulter gives her sickly sweet award-winning performance. Like, I'm talking, give her all the BAFTAs. She Ruth Wilson, that (laughs) motherfucker. And Ama takes off among the rhododendrons. (sighs) Symbolism's neat. It is. She did get a BAFTA, right? She yeah, she did one. actually. Yeah. yeah, Ruth Wilson. After give her us. another one. Yeah, after her glamouring, give her a BAFTA. Got one. Well, Mrs. Coulter goes back to heating up water, creating Lyra's potion with leaves, petals, oils, stirring, and waiting for the liquid to cool. It's all scattered around the cave are various instruments, pistols, and equipment from the late Sir Charles Late Room. This is a camp. <laughs> What is he late for? High tea? Just kidding. Life. Life. (laughs) (laughs) Sucker. Uh, Man, you know, if you haven't watched the TV, uh, the TV adaptation, the experience that you can watch on either BBC or HBO, which again, is not TV. It's HBO. It's a different whole thing. Oh my God. But if you haven't watched it, you should. It's a good adaptation. Season one is good, but vanilla in some aspects, but I think it's good. I liked it. It was a solid, you know, they had to secure the bag for season two, and I think season one rocked. Series two was awesome. It was really good. And series three is going to be great, but Charles Latrum's performance in series two is also throw a bath to his way. You know, Ariane Ariane Bacar, 69. Yeah. Yep. Respect. (laughs) F in the chat, lads. F. Uh... He he was phenomenal though in the show. He was absolutely just clever, funny, charming, also like creepy and weird and suspenseful. He was great. He was a great actor and they did some fun stuff. Yeah. But here we see Coulter already looted all of his good stuff. Right? I, mm-hmm. I love this detail. It's very minor, it's a background detail, but Coulter has looted all the good stuff from Latrum's camp. In the next chapter we have Will trying to figure out what's left that he should loot. And Coulter's already taken pretty much any scientific equipment, weapons, but Will is a survivalist and he's thoughtful and he takes food and a new canteen. And I speak, I think this speaks at the very core of who they are, right? That Coulter's first go was like weaponry, equipment, go, let's go. And he's like, I need food. I need matches. I need this. I need to survive a few days, not just one day. Will's survival, he already has the knife. You know, that's the other thing. He doesn't need weapons, even though they weren't there. And Coulter is a different kind of attack, right? Like, she uses her defense as an offense. She's hiding. She hides to bide her time and energy and strike out when she's prepared. And she's also, I mean, she was hiding beneath Charles Latrum the entire Mm -hmm. previous book, kind of hoping that he would protect her in a lot of ways throughout the last book. So now that he's gone... She's the carrion crow on his body. Mm. Interesting. And yes, I think that's a great point and a great insight into their characters based on just how they react to the same things. And and we'll talk about this a little in the next chapter, right? When Will also encounters the same camp and what he takes from it. You, you've talked a little bit about it, but that's such a good point. And like Mrs. Coulter does come at it from a very defensive point of view but, I mean, that's kind of how she's had to live her life, right? And she's always needed to project strength. 
in some ways. And Will has, as you said, the knife, but he has a different way of projecting strength, and we'll talk about that a little when he meets with the angels. Another thing that I like about this scene is that you get some insight into Mrs. Coulter's character as a scientist. Like, obviously, she didn't just fucking have sleeping potion, like, lying around, and she knows science, right? She She's an acclaimed, I'm sorry, experimental theologian, and knows enough of that that she can make her own. She knows enough of human biology and also just plants to do that. And the language about heating it, there's there's like something about like getting it to the temperature of like blood warm or something like that. And I just thought that was really, really good. Really tickles me about that. It feels so specific. And you better hope it doesn't tickle you too hard. Well, that's true. Right. Next thing you know, I'm like asleep. But yeah, I and, and I mean, it makes sense, right? Of course, the woman who like was kidnapping children knows how to throw together a sedative. Of course she does. <laughs> Nothing like a woman who makes her own roofies, am I right? Oh dear, Jesus Christ! <laughs> yeah, Coulter is something else in this. Like she really is. It's just like so funny because we still don't know with where we are in this chapter so far. We still don't know why she's doing it, and then you find out why, and you're like, "What? Wait, I thought what? This isn't in your five-year evil plan?" <laughs> question mark This is a sidetrack. That's what's so compelling about it, you know? She's like, maybe I'll take off the next few years, you know, go backpacking, eat, pray, love. Uh, this is a, <laughs> that's a choice. Eat, pray, love my daughter that I've kept in a coma. Uh, in a box in the TV show. Mm. So she pours the concoction into a beaker and her demon joins her. They go to Lyra at the back of the cave where she kneels beside her. And Lyra's about to wake up. Panna Lehman is snuggled up at her sweaty breast and moves damp hair off her forehead. The golden monkey's eyes never left Lyra's demon, and his little black fingers twitched at the edge of the sleeping bag. A look from Mrs. Coulter, and he let go and moved back a hand's breadth. I loved this. I like mm-hmm. that we're seeing Coulter fighting herself, her demon, right? And she's literally fighting herself. Uh, especially, again, because we don't know her motive right now, because she has no clue what she's doing until that interiority is revealed to us. I don't know, I think it echoes really well for her that she doesn't know here. Like She's just like, no, just don't touch it. Stay away. <laughs> Keeping it safe until she figures out what the fuck she's doing. I-, I like that insight, and it pairs well with everything else that we're seeing going on, right? Of just her trying to exert her will onto everything else, including Lyra, whom she's lifting gently so that Lyra's shoulders are sitting off the ground. And Lyra's eyes are half open. She's murmuring, Roger, where are you? I can't see. And Marisa shushes her, feeding her the warm tea and letting it carefully trickle into her mouth until it's empty. She lays Lyra back down, and then Pan moves to her neck, deeply asleep again. She washes Lyra with a wet flannel in cool water and combs her hair. She unfolds the food bundle from Ama. Flat loaves of bread, a cake of tea, sticky rice, and a large leaf. Sounds great, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. Mrs. Coulter doesn't deserve nice food at this moment. Anyway. Oh <laughs> Mrs. Coulter, you know, again, uh, as as I said at the top, is throwing Lyra back into infancy. She's living this like really strange, like maternal fantasy of those moments that she lost with her daughter as a child. And 
it, it's a little reminiscent of when she was making Lyra into kind of like her doll in the first book. And like, again, yeah. as you were talking about, like her monkey demon, she's suppressing so many other wills right now, especially Lyra's using the, yeah, you know, sleeping potion that I, I feel it, it's administered in the sort of perversion of breastfeeding. It, it, it reminds me a little bit of these moments from La Belle Sauvage as oh. uh, Mrs. Coulter, right, is she's this Jungian shadow of the mother archetype and as opposed to a mother who protects, right, that the mother, uh, when it's when the mother archetype is functioning, you know, is a protector, supportive, right, has gone to the extreme and instead of nourishing, right, this nourishment is an act of smothering, the nourishment administered in the tea and the feeding, it's all turned in its on its head, this is just like when my cat is holding her baby squirrel doll that's stuffed with catnip, Aww. and then she like starts tearing at it with the claws, and I'm oh, like, no, that's your baby no. girl. What are you doing? No, that's your baby doll. Stop. Oh, no. I'm trying to give her something to love, you know? I'm like, this is your baby doll. You have to take care of her. It's just like that. Uh, it, it actually it, it kind of reminds me of WandaVision in that oh. kind of microcosm. If anyone of you have seen it, uh, just that, like, things. how when you say, like, you know, th those maternal moments that she didn't get to have with Lyra and that she's mm. reliving those moments, uh, she she really is, you know, like, it's that grief, that trauma of having this life torn away from you. And now you have it back in your hands. And, and she is at a precipice, right? Like, she could turn Lyra in and probably, you know, by sacrificing her child, rise even higher in the magisterium rise up in the authorities' eyes, you know? She could totally yeah. just burn it all down and say fuck Asriel and just sell everyone out. Mm -hmm. Or she doesn't know what she could do and she could stay right in this cave right now. Yeah. In in this yeah. cave, she it's a, her fantasy. It's her own little world, her Eden that she's created. And yes. she's built a fire. There's a cold at night in the mountains that is quite fierce. But the catch is she's starting to run out of matches in naphtha, which means that they're going to have to instead keep the fire, the heat going all day long in the cold mountains because then she's not going to have any ways to light it. And not only is energy a problem, but her demon, uh, as you've pointed out, is becoming more skeptical about, yo, what the fuck are you doing? But he doesn't say anything because he doesn't talk. Uh, and she just keeps pushing him away. But it's clearly really starting to affect her, and she's starting to think that she might be going mad. And the last line of the chapter is, The golden monkey was right. She wasn't only hiding Lyra, she was hiding her own eyes. Drama. <laughs> Drama. <laughs> I mean, maybe this is the life you can live, Coulter. You know, you and Lyra out here. Lyra asleep. You know, regretfully the whole time, but you awake. Yeah, it's a half life, so it kind of sucks. It's some. It's, and speaking yeah. of those half lives, right? Uh, then we cut to Roger and Lyra, which is a device we're going to revisit pretty constantly here. Roger is whispering Lyra's name in the darkness, and shadowy, faceless figures are lurking behind him, and he's blurred and shaded, half forgotten. Lyra? Lyra? Where were they? On a great plain, where no light shone from the iron-dark sky, and where mist obscured the horizon on every side. 
The ground was bare earth, beaten flat by the pressure of millions of feet, even though those feet had less weight than feathers. So it must have been time that pressed it flat, even though time had been stilled in this place. So it must have been the way things were. This was the end of all places and the last of all worlds. Lyra. Why were they there? They were imprisoned. Someone had committed a crime, though no one knew what it was or who had done it or what authority sat in judgment. Why did the little boy keep calling Lyra's name? Hope. Who were they? Ghosts. And Lyra couldn't touch them, no matter how she tried. Her baffled hands moved through and through, and still the little boy stood there pleading. Roger, she said, but her voice came out in a whisper. Oh, Roger, where are you? What is this place? It's the world of the dead, Lyra. I don't... I don't know what to do. I don't know if I'm here forever and I don't know if I've done bad things or what because I tried to be good, but I hate it. I'm scared of it all. I hate it. And Lyra said, I'll... <laughs> Scratch. Chicka, you might be chicka, wondering chicka. how I got here. <laughs> <laughs> what a device, right? Like, what a way to yeah. be between chapters. Uh, I think it's really clever. I think taking your heroine out of the very first act of her final book of the original trilogy, that's a bold move. Extremely bold. And he does pull it off, in my opinion. Yeah. Good job, Phil. In case anyone here thinks I've been too mean to Philip Pullman lately, go Phil. And, you know, using that idea of the world of the dead as a communication point for Lyra's subconscious and Roger's to be pit together it's so clever. We get so much of the world of the dead set up in these first three chapters that in reread, I didn't really realize how much is actually set up. And it's really informing us what to expect as we get to that third act later. And this exploration of subconscious and the dead and spirit, it makes the final act of the book that much more fulfilling. Absolutely. And, and you know, as you're saying, it's like this meeting point between the worlds and... <sighs> It's interesting that a different state of mind, right? Her being asleep can be that meeting point between worlds, but also that she's in a cave right now. In a way, the cave is an entrance to underworlds, right? Literally mm -hmm. underground. But in general, I, I was talking about the virtues of the opening of the Amber Spyglass earlier, and I just love that it opens with this contrast of the lush vegetation and these Himalayan landscapes, right? And it's just so well done and contrasts so well with this place, the land of the dead. All of a sudden you go from like beautiful like flowers and stuff to nothing, this gray plain. And I love the way that the plains are described, right? As beaten down and how it's shown to be a matter of time and volume rather than strength because everything is so light. It, it, it's just really, really beautifully done. And it breaks your heart when you realize how, the immensity of what would have caused that. Yeah, it's like watching saturation just leave mm -hmm. the land. It's really nice. It's really Sad. good. Yeah, it, it it is. And as you said, you know, bold move. But I mean, Lyra got her own first book, so yeah, even no, things she, out a little. She did. Evened it out. Well, that brings us to chapter two, and I'm excited for this chapter. I know Eliana is too. Mm -hmm. Balthamos and Baruch. This chapter opens with a quote from the book of Job. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. 
Yeah, so we open up. It's Will Perry, our other main character. He's just watched his father die in front of him. He's lost his girlfriend, and these two schmucks here haven't done, like, shit for him, right? He's getting annoyed because the Gangels want him to follow (laughs) as the Chosen One with the subtle knife, and he's like, that's not what I want to do. And I think it feels quite pointed. Pun kind of attended. With that Job line opening up this chapter, because it's not just the whole, like, literal spirits passing before his face, but the story of Job is very much about a guy who's just, like, lost everything. And Will's just like, yeah, so I've kind of lost everything now. And lost a lot of people. It's kind of hard to go on. Yeah, after that. And <laughs> the Gangels want Will to come with them to serve Asriel. Will's dad also was like, you need to find Asriel. But Will's like, I don't know about that because I want to find Lyra, right? He's like, mm, I think my idea's better. He opens <laughs> Lyra's rucksack up that he had taken, examining the alethiometer within, which that was the classic in the end of the book, right? That's how you know Lyra's in danger. She didn't even take her alethiometer. Mm, yeah, true, true. God. Will pulls his dad's cloak tightly against him. That's a great point that that's how he knows. And honestly, I think it's kind of remarkable to me. Like, I assume all these people know the prophecy, right? Or something. They must have heard something. They're supposed to. That's the whole point. Like, whether it's, like, Will's dad or the the angels, they they must know the prophecy about Lyra. And they're just like, yeah, fuck her. You know, like, what what do you not understand about, like, I don't know, Eve? Do I do not think get about there's it? something pointed, and, and maybe it's... The storytelling that the TV adaptation has been doing was really great. The broad strokes of series two made it so that it was definitely about Coulter's search to get the truth of what it meant that Lyra is Eve, right? And getting that prophecy and the search for the prophecy. So I actually really like the idea that maybe now that we're opening the worlds up like hog wild to all these different creatures and people and spirits... Maybe Lyra's not everything. I'm not saying she's not, because she is. She is everything to me and everyone in the universe, and she always will be. But that the angels are so jaded, like, specifically for them, they're so jaded, obviously, that they're just like, okay, I've heard a ton of prophecies before. I don't know. This is the one I know right now. And these guys are like, we see their jaded uh, personalities kind of change by the end of this, this chapter, right? Like, we see that change a little. Uh, it's mostly both Thamos. Baruch's like always. He's at a th- soft Baruch spot. Baruch is reasonable. Baruch's really reasonable. Balthamos just, you know, is unreasonable when Baruch isn't near, which I understand. I understand. It is insane, yeah. though. Like, they care so much about Will as the knife bearer being their end goal, but disregard these details, right? And free Will feels really important, and Eve eating the apple and all that jazz, like, that feels important. Feels it's important. It's gotta happen. Feels It feels significant. We'll find out if it is or not. I can't tell you. Uh, I don't know. I know the end goal of freeing everyone through this war is big, but it feels also very significant that they're ignoring like the other half of the whole here. Will doesn't get to his end goal without the other part of the prophecy. You know, there were two. That's always the, the Star Wars feeling and the, you know. Too strong within the force that must be there to to bring balance to the world. Yeah, it also feels like, what, did y'all not read the Bible? Like, there's an Adam and an Eve, you know? It it goes, like, (laughs) clearly, the prophecy's gotta have two. 
sidebar, to be fair, for them it might be Adam and Steve, but... Uh, true, but clearly there's two. It it takes two to make it out of sight. It takes two to make it out of sight. So, anyway. Well. <laughs> Will makes the angels swear that they're telling the truth about Azrael's importance, and then asks, so... Are you stronger or weaker than me? And they explain that they have no real flesh, unlike him, so they are weaker. And he's like, good, then you have to listen to me, and we're going to get Lyra first before we go get Azrael. And I'm like, alright, chill out, Will. The rationale of I'm stronger, so you have to do what I say is some kind of like, in my opinion, real colonizer mindset, but you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, it, it is an aggressive <laughs> one. He, he comes at that very aggressively. I was like, oh, Will. I, I try to chalk up a lot of the beginning, like the first quarter of the book, to his trauma and grief, that maybe that's what Pullman is channeling a lot of that anger from. But he is a kind of an interesting character at the beginning of the book. He is. And I think that part is, I guess, kind of consistent with some of what we see about Will when Lyra's all like, he's very strong, you know? And like that's like his his one of his defining mm -hmm. characteristics. But I'm also just like, chill out, William. Yeah. You know what? Like, you almost lost your fingers, then you didn't. You're gonna get through this book okay, so just settle down. Yeah, what if we just, like, <sighs> didn't tell people? I don't know. There, there are other ways to reason with people, right? And clearly for him, I guess yes. it's exerting strength. For Mrs. Coulter, she has a different way. She gets people to do what she wants through trickery. Just kind of what Lyra does. And anyway, so... And to be fair, these angels, specifically Balthamos, can be testy, you know? Balthamos can be testy. That's be all I'm annoying. saying. That's true. I relate. Balthamos and Baruch disapprove of Will's uh, kind of, you know, going off the beaten path, but they're going to help him find Lyra. They decide. Will asks if he will be able to see them better in the daylight, and they're like, actually, we're kind of a lower order, so it's harder <laughs> to see us in daylight. Will sends them off to find Lyra and settles into his father's cloak, accidentally taking a very well-deserved nap. Yes, this is the book where Will gets to nap, which he oh, deserves. Oh, exciting. Yeah, I mean, Lyra's already <laughs> sleeping, right? Maybe Lyra doesn't deserve to sleep right now. You know, some days when I'm like, I didn't get a lot of sleep last night, I think Lyra did enough sleeping for the both of us. <laughs> That's why she said the world to you. Uh, I find this interesting that, like, their luminescence and their visibility is different depending on their ranking. This is great setup for mm -hmm. Metatron coming barreling into the sky soon. He's yeah. a very high-ranking angel, as we'll discuss, and his body is, in the Bible, said to be turned and transformed into, like, eternal flame. And it does seem that this is some significant foreshadowing going on here about, ah, but are angels really that much stronger and better? Question mark. Could mm -hmm. they be killed? Question mark. I mean, we get an answer at the end of this chapter. Yeah, literally yes. in this chapter. Literally. Yes, the answer is yes. Well, Will is then awakened from his nap by the ethereal voice of an angel who says that Lyra is nowhere to be found. It's daylight. And also now it's difficult to see the angel amidst the bright sun. And I don't know, I'm, I'm a little reminded of like the angels in Jesus' tomb being like, I don't know, he's gone now. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> well, no, they, they were actually very happy about it. Oh, um, it was an exciting moment for everyone. Yeah, but I didn't think about that. Like, <laughs> brilliant. Nope, no clue. She's gone. She's risen, but <sighs> not that. She's she's missing. She's 
We don't know where she is. Not yet, We'd let no. her get taken. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> they had and- searched the entire mountain, right? Like, they found no one, not a single soul. But they did find water and a dead man and an empty, vacuous witch whose soul was eaten by a specter. So, you know, they found some life. It's just dead life. Will identifies the man. He's like, oh, that's Sir Charles Latrum. And then he's like, hmm, Mrs. Coulter must have killed him. I love, like, last chapter, we get all of, like, these little hints of drawn-out plots from Pullman. Like, ah, yes, Charles Latrum. Coulter looted him. Ah, yes, Coulter's actually in hiding and isn't evilly kidnapping Lyra, just, like, sadly kidnapping Lyra in an evil manner. Uh, But then Will is like, ah, I deduced all these things in, like, a paragraph. He's so smart. Yeah, absolutely. And... So he's like, all right, convenient for me. Brooke, who is Balthamus' <laughs> partner, goes to follow Mrs. Coulter's trail. Because he's like, this makes sense. We have this uh, line of, although a brutal beaked carrion crow was tearing at the face of one of them, and Will could see a bigger bird circling above as if choosing the richest feast. I don't know. Does this feel like symbolism to you, Eliana? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's foreshadowing for a fourth book in the series called like A Feast for Crows. Oh my god. Uh, I do love this, though, because it's kind of like, it's the metaphor of you guys are staring at the wrong problem, right? Mm -hmm. And Baruch and Balthamos, like we said, are really, really set on getting to Asriel when there are some other more immediate concerns, right, that they need to work through, according to Will. And uh, the idea of, like, he sees one crow tearing at the face of one of the people and he can see a bigger bird circling above, choosing the richest feast. So, like, that bird's not even concerned with the feast that's happening without uh-huh. it. And Metatron is kind of that bird in this chapter. Hmm. Interesting. That's a that's a great that's a great connection between them. That higher order bird, if you will. <laughs> the highest order. It's a visible oh bird. That's for sure. We can see it. <laughs> Uh, Balthamos and Will gaze down at the lake and Will looks at the bodies he doesn't recognize the witch which relieves him because at least it's not Seraphina, Lyra's friend Will's just cold you know, (laughs) cold ass (laughs) motherfucker and he calls out to the invisible angel and the angel comes back into view, introducing himself officially as Balthamos and his absent partner as Baruch and of course since no one can see him, Will wonders aloud if anyone can hear Balthamos and he responds with not if he whispers (laughs) And they head toward the lake to look for useful items, get a drink of water, and go from there. And as they move, Will realizes his hand isn't hurting anymore. That for the first time in forever, because as you'll all remember, this was a very, very stressful point towards the end of the previous book. Like, he realizes then it must have been the blood moss uh, that his father put on his wounds. He's like, wow, the witches couldn't heal me, but my father did. And they, the wounds still ache, but they seem to be healing. And just my, ugh, my heart. Hmm. Yeah, I almost kind of forgot about his whole fingers being off and all that jazz, you know? (laughs) And now he's healed. He can live a semi-normal life. Except how do you go back to life after this story? Anyways. Yeah, right? (sighs) They arrive at the lake. And Will is too hot to wear his father's cloak anymore. Even though once he takes it off, he's like, wow, immediately regret that. I'm going to have sunburn. He drops his stuff and he like guzzles water from the lake, just straight up gets his mouth in there and just chugs. And then when he's done, he comes back and he's like, Balthamos, are there any specters around? Should we be worried? They don't have anything the specters want, though, Balthamos points out. 
as angel and knife bearer. They start to sack through the camouflage tents, which are mostly empty except for the third tent, where Will finds dried meat and a box of matches. Balthamos then points out the tent that the poisoned man is in, and Will goes to sack that too. Sir Charles Latrum, or Lord Boreal, lay dead, his face distorted. Will takes some useful items, thinking his father would have known exactly what to take. He grabs a magnifying glass for fires to save his matches. A reel of twine, a canteen for water, a small tin cup, binoculars, gold coins, coffee, dried fruit, biscuits, Kendall mint cake, and fish hooks in nylon line. He also snags a notebook, pencils, and a torch. Again, great survival items, all mostly defensive, where Coulter took offensive survival items. Yeah, so, you know, coming back to that, his skill... In what he picks is, I think, really highlighted because in the previous chapter, right, Mrs. Coulter's all like, well, shit, I'm about to run out of matches in Naphtha. But mm-hmm. Will has the good foresight of thinking outside the box and as opposed to, like, you know, needing to keep a fire completely ongoing, he takes the magnifying glass because he's like, well, this will be able to light fires regardless of if I have matches or not. So I thought that was really cool. Also, like, that connection, right, of him thinking of how to start fires um, and, and the matches, right? Even though, I, I mean, his father was all like, yeah, I know how to light fires, not because I'm a wizard, but because I fucking use matches mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and a lighter. I mean, also on that note, like, there's something, even from, like, a plot narrative that the children are figuring out the sustainable way for survival where the adults are not sustainably surviving or living. Absolutely. And I also think it's interesting that, like, you know, what Will is doing here, right, and taking things from Charles Latrum's body, a.k.a. Lord Boreal, which um, we'll talk about in a second, is uh, even though it's not the title of this chapter, it ties into the title of the next chapter, Scavengers. He is himself, like those carrion mm. birds, scavenging the bodies. And speaking of Lord Boreal's names, I, I like that they highlight that he was called Charles Latrum in Will's world, but known as Lord Boreal and Lyra's, but I like that they use the line specifically as known as, right? The idea that both of his names were very true, that both were his real identity, regardless of being different words, that Lord Boreal was utterly himself, no matter where he went or what name. Yeah, and Will is learning to embrace that, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, As a person who's walking between worlds with Lyra now and learning to open worlds and learning to travel between them. And for someone like Boreal, who we learn is able to game the system and game the windows, Will is the absolute foil to him, right? Him actually stealing items off his body feels pretty pointed. Like, Mm -hmm. these are the things he learned from Boreal or the things he can take, quite literally take from Boreal's body to get him through his story. But the bad parts of Lord Boreal are what caused Lord Boreal to die. And that's where Lord Boreal is, and he's a thing of the past now. Yep. Indeed, indeed. Whereas, yeah, Lord Boreal, you're talking about sustainability. Yep. He was stealing things to benefit himself. Yes. Further his own station, and Will is doing it, as you said, for survival, also contrasted with Marisa Coulter's usage of it for for power, offensiveness. Yeah. Uh, I specifically thought of it when you were talking about her naphtha running out, and it's like... Mm -hmm. Your naphtha's running out and your time's running out in the story. Indeed. Well, you know what else is going to run out? Lyra's nap. 
<laughs> the More eventually on that nap though <laughs> later. <laughs> uh, anyways, yeah. so we'll backs it all up. He eats a sliver of meat. He asks Balthamos if he should get anything else. Balthamos responds scathingly with some sense and faculty to enable you to recognize wisdom. And Will retorts <laughs> asking, so do you have wisdom? And Balthamos is like, more than you. I'm rubber, you're glue. Uh, <laughs> He's very mature. He's a sassy bitch. He's, He's a sassy <laughs> motherfucker. His Love sarcasm him. and his dry sense of humor is one of my favorite things in the story. What else should I take? Some sense, Balthamos says. Amazing. You know, uh, Eliana and I may refer constantly to him in the story as our friend Dylan, because he reminds me of our friend Dylan very much that you've also met that is just very dry, very like making those yeah. very snide <laughs> comments. And if you blink, you'll miss them. But what yeah. was the one earlier? There was one earlier that was so fucking funny. Oh, it had me so good. Where is it? Hold on. I don't know where it is. We really aren't even that far. How could I not find it? Anyways, they're throughout this chapter, they're just peppered throughout. Bothamos is just like real snarky, real funny. Definitely keep an eye out for those if you're rereading this chapter at home because they get me going. They really do. <laughs> Will and, and him go back and forth for a little bit, right? Will asks, are you a man? Because you kind of sound like a man with that attitude. And Balthamos is like, I was not a man, but Baruch was. Will is trying to comprehend this and understand this. Balthamos explains, people don't necessarily become angels when they die. It's very rare, usually. Baruch is actually about 4,000 years old, but Balthamos is much older than that. Wow, age gap. Yeah, it's a big age gap, but... I guess after a while, right? After after the first thousand years, you kind of even out. It's my assumption. <laughs> and they both came from Will's world. Well, Baruch especially did. He was a human from Will's world. And Will was like, I want to understand how you became angels. But Balaam was like, I don't really understand like why you care about this metaphysical like speculation. Puny human. He doesn't say that. It's kind of the mood. And he says that Will now has his toys to keep his human mind occupied. <laughs> So they should move on to find Will's friend, but Will has more important things to do, and so he sits down to eat three squares of the mint cake, feeling that food will nourish him. He looks at the alethiometer and its 36 icons, which still make absolutely no sense to him, and he wonders aloud, like, how did Lyra read this to Balthamos, who was like, maybe she made it up, most people have to study, like, years for that crap. And Will's like, no, she could, like, actually read it. Like, she knew how to read the device, and she read it truly. And I, again, I'm just like, so, do they know the prophecy or not? Like, this was a pretty big part of it. <laughs> you know? Well, and even here, though, they minimize the action, right? Like, they minimize, well, I don't know. Don't you have to study it for years? Like, she probably made that up. Whatever. It's such a fleeting, tiny detail to them. You know? They're like, it's like reading a story about gods. They're these luminescent beings that have lived for far too long <laughs> maybe that's the irony of them right like angels are mm -hmm. supposed to be and of course they are rebel angels but angels are supposed to in many ways symbolize faith but they're not they're very big skeptics even of the things that are aligned with what they should believe that's maybe a that's the point idea. yeah i don't know because i'm like well, <laughs> do you not know everyone fucking knows <laughs> Um, <laughs> I know. Oh my god. 
Will remembers the time Lyra told him she has to have a certain state of mind to read the alethiometer. He curiously feels the subtleties of isahetras, or the subtle knife's edges, cutting a very small window into the air to gaze down at the landscape of trees and fields in his own world. He closes it with his left hand for the very first time, and he has a very exciting thought. If there were myriads of worlds, why did the knife only open windows between this one and his own? Surely it should cut into any of them. I mean, I have thoughts on that, but... <laughs> yeah. yeah. The heart wants what it wants, Will. Oh. <laughs> and the heart if wants... If I'm not bad for you, then why does my heart tell me that I am? Uh... Will practices what Mr. Paradisi had told him, letting his consciousness join the knife as he cut through the air. And the angel asks what he's doing. And, you know, at one point he's like, so are you going to stay here all day? <laughs> and <laughs> Will's like explaining, yes. right? He's telling him to back up since he can't see him. He's like, so do you want me to fuck this up and like hurt you or not? And the angel, like, probably, as far as he knows, steps backward. This time Will holds the knife out, feeling for the resistant fabric of the universe and then he does it he finds other worlds they feel slightly different than the usual worlds and the ones that he finds at first are a little they're a little frail and cloudy and then he finds ones that are sturdier more definite same same level like literally to walk upon um and opens them like again that desert of rolling dunes and a smoke-laden industrial city with lines of chainsaw and workers trudging into a factory are you sure that's not your own world will Pullman really loves that one, right? Uh, no, no big spoilers. We see it in La Belle Sauvage too, and we see it throughout the stories. But that whole industrialism ruining the earth, Pullman loves to talk about that one in his metaphors. There, I'm not convinced that's not a world. Anyway, I mean it is. It's his commentary <laughs> yeah. on our world right now and what's happening yeah. to it. Uh, well, wow. Will feels dizzy, but for the first time, he understands some of the knife's true power. Balthamos interrupts, and Will explains he's starting to understand the logistics of cutting open worlds, and he kind of sees how you could get lost in one forever. Ooh, mm. a little foreshadowing, eh? It's a, anyway. It's a lot of oof, thinking. Oof. It's a lot of he thoughts. definitely thinks that he had gotten lucky between Oxford and Chitigatse, but he tries one more time. This time he's able to open the same place and feel the same resonance as he opens. The ground in the world he opened is parallel to the ground in this world. He gazes into a grassy meadow with large, blue, shaggy-like bison creatures, and he steps through the window. He feels with his knife to cut a new window back to his world, and he's able to close them and open them. He heads back through the window to the lake camp, closing the other ones, knowing he'll be able to use the knife to hide and go home whenever he wants now. Dude, I love, I, I know we don't, I don't think we see them again. I love the shaggy bison with mohawks. Yes. Mulafa cousins. Yeah. They're punk rock. All right. Punk rock Mulafa. <sighs> love them. Anyway, it's interesting that Will is realizing and learning all this about the knife and finding different worlds and how to get back home, knowing that he can go home whenever he wants, during the same sequence that Balthamos is insisting that he and Baruch will always know how to find each other. Hmm. <sighs> wow. And it's that innate intuition that he's trusting after learning to wield the knife in a different manner. Yeah. Uh, Feeling. Yeah. Senses. Mm -hmm. Feeling. 
Balthamos finally pipes up. He's like, all right, going to go bother the kid again. And he's like, hey, travelers are coming. And Will's like, ugh, ugh, car. And he gathers the rucksack in his father's cloak. They head down the trail, avoiding the travelers, Balthamos guiding them. Yeah, the way that he says it, he's he's so rude about it, too. He's just like, are you ready now? And then he's like, I, mean, I guess. I, and he's like, well, you know, whatever you do. He, I, I'm just going to read it because I, I, we need more Balthamus lines. All right. Oh, I find whatever you do a source of perpetual fascination. But never mind me. What are you going to say to these people who are coming? That's how he explains there are people coming. So rude. <laughs> so rude. What are they going to say about your little sword dancing lesson? What are you going to say to these people coming? <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, uh, I do uh, love, I do love uh, the sequence, though. I, I think it's so cute. The uh, Just that Balthamos is just pestering him like, I'm bored. What are you doing now? I want to annoy you. Yeah, right. And Minerva Will's like, so are you there? He's just like, always here. <laughs> Still here. <laughs> it is you know like in this point right if the first chapter is lyra in pseudo eden this is will in the wilderness cast out from eden right his innocence was lost when you know his father died right in front of him moments after being reunited and (laughs) sad times they pass rhododendrons coming down some bare mountains and after a while will request that they stop for a water break but oh my god, not Will, that you're kind so of water close. Break. You're so close, Will. Spiritually. They're right spiritually. there, the rhododendrons. The road adendrons is a lot longer. The road <laughs> to dodendrons. <laughs> Will fills his canteen and they make to set off, but Balthamos exclaims and darts off suddenly. He calls for Will to follow, and they come upon a window. It opens up into a flat tundra, and Balthamos says it's the girl's own world where they came through. Balthamos can tell Baruch had gone through to find them. Will is kind of surprised. He's like, how do you know all this? And Balthamos is like, yes, we read each other's minds. Me and you casually. Yeah, we read each other's minds all the time. And (laughs) wherever he goes, his heart goes too. And then Balthamos says... (laughs) We feel as one, that we are two. Yeah, definitely a lot of foreshadowing for the passion, the deep, passionate friendship Will and Lyra have. Very, yeah. very good friendship. Her it special friendship. friend, Will. Oh my god. <sighs> the night is quiet and cold and kind of creepy, so they decide they'll head toward Chitigatse to camp for the night. Will asks if Balthamos can take a different shape because he's going to need to pass as a demon in Lyra's world. He demands Balthamos show him his power. It's like the funniest line. He's straight up. It's like, show me your power. Like a little kid asking a power ranger to transform or some shit. And Balthamos becomes a tiny blackbird at Will's feet. He flies to Will's shoulder and he's like, I shall only do this when it's necessary. It's unspeakably humiliating. I know it is. He's so. He, I mean, understandably, I I could understand it being pretty humiliating. You know, when you're like an angel. <laughs> I get it. But side note, That's an ancient being, right? Balthamos is the angel whispering in Will's ear over one of his shoulders. 
But he's also technically the devil in it, too, as a rebel angel. And I will say, you know, Will requests that he take on a blackbird shape. And, you know, we were seeing some of those carrion creatures earlier on. And I will say, we don't know that it's a raven for sure. But, I mean, ravens are blackbirds. And it reminds me of the demon of another one of Lyra's protectors. The master of Jordan College, oh. Uwu. Oh, I love, I love that. Him. I didn't. I didn't even think of that. It's a protective raven, mm-hmm. a blackbird. <sighs> well, we get more of that great snarky relationship because Balthamos was all like, "I don't want to do it," and Will's like, "Well, that's too bad. You have to. So just do it." <laughs> <laughs> Will, it's not very kind. It's not very kind at all. He asks if Balthamos has a location on Baruch with his weird angel GPS, and he does. Baruch is following the woman south, and they say they'll go that way in the morning. They walk for hours the next day, finding nothing but hills and grass. Ahead, there's a darker green that can be seen, which looks like a forest with a river nearby. When they reach the end of the forest, the sun is low, heavy with pollen in the air, and they finally see something living, a real bird. They head toward the stream and make camp, and they find a circle of charred stones, a fire pit left by someone else. Will loads it up with wood. He cuts the wood with his knife, which I feel like kind of uh, defeats one of the rules Mr. Paradisi gave him about not using the knife for common purposes, but whatever, Will. And then they make dinner. (laughs) I know you would. They make dinner. Oatmeal biscuits, dried meat, and Kendall mint cake. Balthamos sulks, watching Will, but then he finally reveals he's not sulking because of Will. It's just because he's waiting for Baruch to come back. <sighs> well, Will offers to share his food, which is very sweet of him. That's a typical Will thing to do. And Balthamos kind of inquires after the Kendall mint cake. And... Balthamos takes one bite to nourish him and will watches him nibble quietly, which does make me think of something. I'll, I'll bring this up in the discussion, but it's interesting that Balthamos would be tempted to taste this uh, human food and its sweetness. And it turns out if Will looks at the fire with the angel at the edge of his vision, he kind of sees him better. <sighs> That's kind of cute. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about that. Yes. <sighs> So it turns out, yes, Will can see him much better in the smoke, in the fire. And it, I, I think it's kind of interesting that like he looks out of the corner of his eye to see him more clearly. Kind of like the alethiometer, right? The way that Lyra has mm. to focus on it. Kind of like the similar way that Will opens windows by yeah. just using the edge of his vision. And it also reminds me of another story set in this universe in La Belle Sauvage, which we'll probably talk about that in the discussion. Yes, interesting, interesting. And reminds me of something also towards the end of this book that we will come to in the discussion. But for now, Will is asking, where is Baruch? And how are they? how is he communicating with him? And Balthamus says that he can just feel his presence, that he'll be there soon. And wing beats come moments later, and the angels embrace. Uh, and we have this line of Will, gazing into the flames, saw their mutual affection more than affection. They loved each other with a passion. Aww. So, Brooke and Balthamos sit together, and Will stokes the fire. He can see them more clearly now in the smoke. Balthamos is slender. 
wings folded elegantly in a look of haughty disdain, but also tender sympathy. <sighs> More of that description is, As if he would love all things, if only his nature would let him forget their defects. But he saw no defects in Baruch, that was clear. Baruch seemed younger, as Balthamos had said he was, and was more powerfully built, his wings snow-white and massive. He had a simpler nature. He looked up to Balthamos as to the fount of all knowledge and joy. I just have to add that Eliana before this begged me to be Balthamos in all of the readings, so the fact that she just jumped up to read that. Make your own assumptions about it. Should make I your own assumptions, listener. No, I'm just putting it out there that they should make their own assumptions about Eliana's passion and how she sees no defects in Baruch. That was I just clear. wanted I just wanted to be sassy. <laughs> but you accidentally became the most deepest, passionately in love angel. Am I not Simp. also that? You know? Yeah, I I have I'm complex, you know. I have a lot of sides to me. Uh, she loves me so much. Impatient I am for news, Will asks after Lyra. So Baruch reveals that Lyra is captive in a cave in the trees kept by a woman. Safe, but asleep. Dreaming. He makes them a map in the soil, and Will copies it to his notepad. It's a Himalayan valley near a glacier, and the light turns to rainbows near the ice. Aww. It showed a glacier with a curious serpentine shape, flowing down between three almost identical mountain peaks. Serpentine? Beyonce? It, it stands out. It stands out. It stands out. It stands out. Could it have anything to do with serpentine? I don't know. The light turning to rainbows does feel interesting, right? Like it's northern lights, but in daytime uh, with the rainbows. Yes. Uh, so it makes me wonder if there's a window reflecting there. Or if the hmm. worlds are broken where they're seeing that rainbow. It wouldn't be surprising if there was just one, like, you know, on a mountain. Why not? Yeah, why not? Why not? It does remind me in uh, some of the extended stories, like La Belle Sauvage, there's certain parts where you can see different worlds from different angles, right? So maybe, hmm. maybe that's another world over there and we just don't know. Yeah. Somewhere else entirely. Well, the second map... Baruch draws, shows the valley, the tundra, and mountains, allowing Will to get a much more precise location. It's hard when you don't have GPS. I wonder if it'll be... I guess he won't have GPS there either, anyway. Um, there's a shrine nearby with red banners <laughs> torn by the wind, and a young girl brings food to the cave for them. Baruch explains, everyone thinks that the woman there is a saint who will bless them if they care for her. Again, lol. They deduce, it seems, Marisa's hiding from the church. Uh, again, real real smart in this chapter. They get through all the stuff from the first chapter, like, snap, snap, like that. Good for them. Good for them. Uh, I like when people are smart characters. Well, Will stirs the powdered coffee into his fire-heated water. It's a little different. It's, it's actually the exact opposite of a sleeping potion, if you think about it. And a bird oh. calls in the night. Suddenly, for no reason, in Will's eye, Baruch and Balthamos freak out the way that 
Will notices, he, he thinks of his cat, like, sometimes just turning up and freaking out about something that he can't really see. And they tell Will to put out the fire. He sees nothing, but he does it. Cold strikes his bones, and the clouds begin to glow, which is kind of freaky. I, I mean, I'm sure if it weren't, like, for them being scared. It, it's kind of cool. It sounds like it could be cool. Baruch's murmuring, the chariot? Could it be? And before Will can ask much more, Baruch tells him to take out his knife because something's hurtling out of the sky and into Balthamos and Baruch fights to free him. And then we get like this huge action fight scene between enemy angels, and, like our BFF angels. And it's it's actually pretty cool. I don't love most fight scenes. This one's fun. It's so early on. It is. It's an action packed book. It's so it's so early on, right? Yeah, it the is. action starts really fast. This book grips you the entire way through. And Will gets in on the action himself. He tries to cut them a window out of the battle, Mm. and he holds his electric torch out suddenly to interrupt the fighting. He ends up blinding the attacker, surprising the attacker, and another angel, bigger and stronger, is being subdued by Baruch. That second angel, man-shaped, calls out and says, Lord Regent, I have them! And he tries to strike into the air, but Will uses the knife then to kill him reluctantly, remembering Balthamus's words, you have true flesh, we have not. Human beings were stronger than angels, stronger even than great powers like this one, and it was true. He was bearing the angel down to the ground. I love this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's really informational, right, for all of us reading the book that, especially in, in the eye of the third act of the novel, mm-hmm. against Metatron, I mean, humans could survive against these great beings. Yeah, it's some good it's some good uh laying down of the groundwork. And we discussed the similarities between Jacob fighting the angel during that like kerfuffle between Will and his father when it was dark and no one knew it was happening. But now it's actually happening. There is uh there's a sequence of fighting angels. And Will sees the clouds swirling above, like plasma energy flowing through them. It's maybe a little bit like Ghostbusters. I don't know. And Will tries to stop both the angel beneath him that he has subdued, as well as cut them out before whoever he is comes. And a deep tremor comes from the sky, shaking the atoms of the air. It's the Stay Puff. Um, and Will watches the clouds part, a figure speeding down. It really could be the Stay Puff Man, though, becoming larger and larger and more imposing. <laughs> Both Amos and Baruch are injured, and the angel that they subdue ends up dying, dissolving and spreading out like mist. You know. I loved the addition of this scene. It kind of reconfirms and reinforces angels are made of dust, mm-hmm. like demons, right? Demons are also made of dust. They have the same deaths there with their dust scattering everywhere. But it also adds this other element again. Heavenly beings are not as different from our own flesh and soul in some aspects. Mm. Absolutely. And I think it was laid out, right? I don't know if it was in this book or the previous one that the angels were created first, right? And are therefore a little less mm-hmm. sophisticated, allegedly, than, than humans, which is, you know, feels fun. Yeah. <laughs> and Will passionately declares that he hates killing, and when will it stop? And <sighs> interesting. <laughs> but the angels say that they don't have time and that the incoming angel looks terrifying and is raising a spear to kill them. This is some Night King shit. <laughs> season 8 is the last book. Season 8 so. in this shit. This is some Night no, King. No, that was season 7. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Fake fan. 
<laughs> I mean, a real fan doesn't care about what happened in, in the bad show. But we got a good show now. Anyways, um, Will cuts them out of this world just in time, closing the window, and feels a shock of air where the spear would have come through. Once safe, both Amos and Brooke explained that they ex- escaped Metatron, who they're <laughs> hoping to fight against with Azrael. And Will asks, is he God? And the explanation is no. Um, they're like, no, he's the authority, God, the creator, the Lord, Yahweh, El, Adonai, the king, the father, the almighty. Those were all names he gave himself. He was never the creator. He was an angel like them, made of dust, and matter loves matter, and it sought to know more about itself, and thus dust was formed. I have to say once more, Philip Pullman outdid himself in this plot. Uh, One of my favorite bits of mythos and religious references going on in the story goes hand in hand with Metatron. Mm -hmm. And the idea that Metatron has faked it till he made it, and somehow he's been handed all of this power, is so poignant. He is just a pretender, right? The force of power for the man that is stuck behind the curtain, the real authority. Mm -hmm. But there's something so interesting in a lot of the mythology of Judaism, for example, on how the story of God creating everything is presented. And I'm going to preface this as a recovering Catholic with God kind of looks like an asshole. Okay. Uh, One of the primary rabbinic debates about creation is whether God had assistance or not. So while everyone argues about who made earth, God made earth is like, you know, the big standpoint, the Christian standpoint is end all be all. God did it. A lot of people argue God sent his angels to make earth, right? As you just talked about a minute ago, that angels might have been early models of human or of bodies. But uh, God sent angels to work, which means he still made everything, right? Because he made the angels, blah, blah, blah. So project managing is hard. <laughs> <laughs> There are a couple myths that relate to that. Uh, I recommend The Three Craftsmen. But basically, God creates the world, and when he does, everything consists of water. From water, he develops the world using the three craftsmen, heaven, earth, and water. Water produces earth, earth produces creations, heavens makes a separation between the upper and lower waters. Sounds classist, but okay, God. He then joins the three craftsmen to create man, because they could not do it alone. Now, this myth is kind of funny because this implies God actually only was responsible for 25% of people, right? Souls, which are, I mean, pretty important, especially in his dark materials terms. We know the soul feels kind of significant, but one-fourth, you know, in that myth, God only put one-fourth of the work forward, like a really shitty team project. No, I mean, he was project managing it, and that's really hard. I, I stand by Was that. he managing it, though? It sounds because like it. Because here we have Metatron. Well, Metatron comes later, right? First, there's, like, this this first angel, right? The first angel was all like, right. I'm going to give myself cool names. And later on, he's like, hmm, I'm going to make a hire. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the, the authority had told those that came after him that he created them a lie. And one of the angels who came later was wiser than him, found out the truth, and he banished her. And Brooke and Balthamos now follow her, but the authority reigns in the kingdom, with Metatron as his regent. Oh, that's Zephania, right? Is who we're talking about there? Yeah, yeah. 
I didn't ever get that the first read through. Wow. Yeah, she's important. She's a big deal. Big moves. Starting her own, you know, branching off. Starting her own business. Um, (laughs) Well, they explain a few phrases that he keeps hearing said. For example, the clouded mountain, sometimes called the chariot, which moves from place to place, and it's the heart of the kingdom. Wherever he goes, his citadel and his palace go to. The authority dwells within the heart of the mountain and has delegated most of his power to Metatron. I have to appreciate this because when I reread this chapter, all I could think about was you talking about your movable garden. So I hope ah. you feel good about yourself that you were in my head. Uh, you know, but always together, always know with the other. We are one, though two. <laughs> oh my god. Now is not the time to declare your passion for me in front of everyone, Eliana. <laughs> Earlier was that time. My bad. I missed I miss my chance. <laughs> Learn boundaries. The metamorphosis and enthronement of Enoch uh, is one of my favorite enthronement myths in religious text. So... Let's talk about Enoch and Metatron and enthronement. Enoch and Metatron and the myths surrounding them are not dissimilar to other stories like Jacob, Moses, King David, or even Adam, but Metatron's is probably the most epic proportion and the most metal, as we've talked about. Uh, In the Old Testament in Christianity, the prophet Elijah and the patriarch Enoch are bodily assumed into heaven on their chariot of fire, alive, some of the few living people to see heaven. The text of the book of Genesis says Enoch lived 365 years before he was taken by God. And it reads, he walked with God and he was no more, for God took him. In the early Jewish Kabbalah, Metatron is the name Enoch receives after his transformation into an angel. When God saw his righteous ways, he called upon Anaphil to bring him to heaven. Instantly, Enoch found himself in his fiery chariot, drawn by fiery horses, ascending on high. When the chariot arrived, the angels caught the scent of a living human, and they were ready to cast him out, to cast him down, because living was not permitted here. But God explains he brought him here to rule in his name. God then put his hand on Enoch, blessed him, and the metamorphosis began, his flesh turning to flame, bones to fiery coals, hair to fire and flame, body to smolder. It is said God gave him 365 eyes, each one oh, no. a sun in itself. No luminary shone brighter than Enoch. Oh, yes. no. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, no. That, that doesn't sound oh, cool. Yes. I feel like, I don't know that I wanted this. I didn't want this. <laughs> well, that's the thing is like thinking of all this. Of course, Metatron got too much power. You know, like, of course. Oh, my God. God is giving him the works. Like, he made him a throne similar to his throne of glory. He made him a majestic robe, gave him curtains of splendor. Uh, He even gives him a fucking crown. Like, God really hooked it up. He was like, we're just going to give you the whole package. He gives him 365 eyes. Why did he need that many eyes? Where are you going to put the crown when you have that many eyes? That's true. Uh, He then, (laughs) he sends out a message God sends out this message, right? He sends out a big DM to the entire universe. And he's like, hey, this is my main guy, Metatron. Listen to him. He knows what he's about. He speaks with my voice. So God is like, second in command powers. Have fun. Your job, only job, Metatron, is record the histories above and below. How Pullman translates Metatron into this story is fascinating. And again, Not to toot his horn too much, but good job, bravo, Phil, if 
God gave most of his power to someone, set them up with their own throne, crown, chariot, palace, everything. That's a lot of trust for a man that was transformed into an angel. And Metatron in this story is obviously hunger for that. Is obviously hungry for that power and control. You can't just give a man like four rapidash. See what happens. Anyways. <laughs> now he wants to be a Pokemon master. This is the Giovanni story. Um, oh my god. <laughs> I'm gonna sleep with the fishes. Uh, he does, I think, actually have a Rapidash, doesn't he, in his team? I could be wrong. I think so. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that's uh, that's horrifying. I guess, I mean, that, you it's know, pretty cool. you're given, like, all this power, right? You're given 365 eyes, each one a sun. <laughs> you know, maybe once you get that much power, you don't even care what, like, normal looks like. You're just like, this is it, dude. That's That's what happens in this story. Well, Balthamus starts to take his frustration out on Will for them being seen, and especially for being seen with the knife by Metatron. But how are you? How are you going to hide yourself? All right, that man has three hundred. Not man, sorry. He has three hundred sixty-five eyes. You you didn't stand a chance. And Brooke gently talks him down because it's obvious that they're withholding some sort of secret from Will. And Will's like, all right, um. Left field, wild card, what happens when we die? That's his question instead. <laughs> and Baruch tells him, a world of the dead exists, and no one knows what happens there. His ghost was saved by Balthamos from that fate, and vice versa. It is interesting, though, because Baruch Aww. is um kind of in that way, right? It's a foil to Metatron, in that he yeah. was also a man, turned into an angel. But Baruch's, like, fun, you know? And good. Yeah, he's fine. Good. Over, overarchingly good. Has two eyes. I, I was thinking the opposite, right? I was actually thinking in a way that Baruch is to Will as Balthamos is to Lyra. Oh, interesting. Look at yeah, that. Yeah, especially Balthamos' snark and vulnerability, uh -huh. right? And like that Balthamos has to remind himself, like, all right, I need to back down later from being mean to Will, which is a lot of what Lyra is doing, right? In the last book, in this book, of trying to, you know, help uh be a team member with will and baruch being kind of the rational one will does tend to be a little more rational when he hasn't you know lost his only family member that he didn't you know know that he could have a relationship with lost his best friend yeah a lot of things a lot of things go on and he's pretty rational otherwise in my opinion he's very yeah. like he calms lyra down he's like all right don't put eggshells in the omelet, first of all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, before then, in the in the land the land of the world of the dead, Balthamus is like, oh, it's a prison camp, basically. Established by the authority <laughs> in the early ages. And I'm just like, damn, the angels just do not care. They're like, we got our mission, we have our thing we want to take care of, and like, I don't know, who gives a shit about the land of the dead? I escaped it. <laughs> I am glad that, obviously, you can tell by the end of the chapter, Baruch was like, hey, Balthamos, remember, you're kind of being an asshole to this kid. Yeah. He's not 4,000 years old like I am, you know, so you, you should probably shape up a little bit. Uh, I, I think that's important that here, obviously, they're being a little bit insensitive, but Baruch's love and kindness reminds Balthamos to stop being such a dick all the time and to be kind, which is very nice. It's kind of funny, you know, even though they are much older, right? 
live for a long time, live much longer than witches, right? I, we were told mm-hmm. when Rudiscotti meets them, they seem like so much more, I don't know, aloof, right? And mm-hmm. and very regal and beyond anything Rudiscotti can comprehend. Yet the witches are much more also at the same time like stoic, whereas... You know, I guess once you reach a certain age, maybe after you reach like a thousand years, you stop being stoic and you're just like, I don't know, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> fuck them. Well, and you know how like, I don't know, you know how cats are? How they like, well, when a cat is like standing very still and very elegantly, mm. very stoic like that, like, and they can like do that for hours. They can just sit in one place for hours not move and just close their eyes and put their ears back and be and exist and that is exactly how those angels are they're like i could stay right here on my perch for three days straight and then fly somewhere else pretty much actually though yeah (sighs) the angels are like oh so why do you want to know about death kid and will's like oh my dad just died and you know he would have told me about everything but he was killed in front of me it's pretty fun. Baruch is like, well, it's impossible to say what happens there. Even the churches don't know. They just tell their believers they go to heaven, but it, it's a lie. And if people knew, and he trails off, and Will's like, oh, so that's where my dad's ghost is? And they're like, yeah, along with the other millions who died before him. And it is such like a Baruch. It's impossible to know what happens there. Balthamos, horrible torture, slavery prison <laughs> and, but they're like probably they don't actually know no probably. one really knows who could say i mean they're like i'm say? not trying to find out <laughs> why would i go there yeah uh well finally will asks why they didn't take whatever this huge secret is that they won't tell him to asriel straight away instead of looking for him balthamos is like well we weren't sure that asriel would believe us because we're too low-ranking angels remember without proof of our intentions and thus your knife and you were very important to bring along will is like that's kind of a feeble excuse because if it's that important of a secret to like save people and stuff i mean i would have just taken it there and they're like well we also knew metatron would be chasing us and we wanted to protect the knife from metatron if only you would have let us take you to asriel first I don't know, I think Will has a point. He's like, if it's negative of a secret, then... Yeah. Yeah. Spit it out. Yep. I stand, I, I stand with Will on that. I will say, though, I, I, they are pointing out that Will is being pursued, right, because of the knife, and because of who he is, right, as the knife ba- bearer. And, of course, we know that Lyra is also being pursued by another another part of the religious forces, the Magisterium. So both of them are being pursued by these different... Re- religious forces and it reminds me a little of right uh the way jesus and the pharisees were but also especially jesus as a baby and king herod being like "Mm, what if we send people to kill him that's fun right yeah i i definitely was thinking something similar with the lyra stuff but will as well that's a really good call out that he's also being pursued as part of that chosen one mythology mythos Mm mm-hmm Will is adamant about getting to Lyra, and he's like, she is the most important thing at stake, and you guys are forgetting her completely. Exactly what Eliana said. I agree. (sighs) Will starts to get real mad now. I get this. This is young love. Will starts to get real frustrated, real mad, because he loves Lyra, and he's like, just leave me here and go to Asriel on your own while I look for Lyra. And Balthamos is like, you need a demon in Lyra's world. 
you can't you can't go without me and will is so mad he has to walk away he stomps away and then it's hot so he's like fine i'll just walk back and it's humid and so he walks back and the two angels then humbly and awkwardly apologize again baruch had a little chat i think during this time with balthamos (laughs) baruch says he'll give Azrael the information and request his aid for them in finding lyra balthamos will stay with will to protect him and assist him Will thanks him, and they embrace. Uh-huh. Baruch kisses both of Will's cheeks, aw, and Will asks, how will you find us if we keep going to look for Lyra? Baruch says he shall never lose Balthamos and soars into the stars. I love that. Also, like, soon after, there's, like, the moment, right, where, it, and it just kills me. It kills me as Will looks over at Balthamos, who is staring off into where, like, Baruch has flown off and is just... It, it is described as looking at it longingly, and it oh, at the stars, just looking up into the stars, yep. longingly. Uh, yep, to where Baruch is. Mm. So Baruch, eh? <sighs> anyway, um, so Will and Balthamos make camp, and Balthamos apologizes for being short with him, right? And I mean, I love that; it's so great. And he's noting that Will has the greatest burden. I will say, I don't know. He's just like, Will, I have been short with you. And it was wrong of me. You have the greatest burden, and I should help you, not chide you. I shall try to be kinder from now on. And Will lays in the sand, you know, when Balthamos takes the first watch. But kinda is like, you know what it is. Now he gets to sleep. Again, this is this is about Will sleeping now. And we do return to Lyra and Roger, who, uh, Lyra is sleeping and Roger is in the great sleep. Get us out of here, Roger. I I promise. And Will's coming. I'm sure he is. He didn't understand. He spread his pale hands and shook his head. I don't know who that is. And he won't come here. And if he does, he won't know me. He's coming to me. And me and Will, oh... I don't know how, Roger, but I swear we'll help. And don't forget, there's others on our side. There's Serafina, and there's Yorick, and... <laughs> I don't remember, does she... I don't know how she knows, because, like, when this continues in a second, which we'll get to, she doesn't see Mr. Scoresby also. Hmm. Maybe Roger has told her. Maybe. I mean, like, maybe she can sense it because she's there, kind of, in mm-hmm. that world. I don't know, but... Mm, like a Pokédex of dead people. Yeah. It does seem like an oversight briefly, but anyways. Roger being like, I don't know who that is. Regarding <laughs> Will. She's just like, yeah, Will's well, gonna that's come. that's because you're dead. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's also, I don't know. I guess he knows who Seraphina and Yorick are. But mm-hmm. I love the parallels of Will being so sure that he will find Lyra wherever she is. And he's like, we're gonna find her, alright? It's the same as Lyra's being so sure. That Will will find her, no matter where she is. Same thing. Even though they are in different worlds at this time. And it's a, as you're talking about, right? It's very similar to the connection that Baruch and Balthamos have. That resolve of no matter what's in the way or where they are, what world they're in, Baruch and Balthamos will find each other. And of course, Will staring at Balthamos and Baruch's like embrace and seeing like, oh, okay, this is what being in love looks like. Because he's never really seen people in love before, any lovers in this way. 
And though he's scarred from his father's death, I will say, you know, at, at least like this is his first, I think, real encounter of, okay, so this is what love, romantic love looks like. Un unlike Lyra's, which is, you know, seeing two lovers embrace, she's like, hmm, okay, those are my parents. And one of them just killed my best friend. And the other was basically just trying to kill a lot of other kids. So well, yeah. well, well got it like, okay-ish right now. And I would also push back and say, like, how he experiences his father dying and how the witch does say, and for as much as we've complained about it in the past, and also for as much as we've lauded how the TV show fixed all of it, <laughs> uh, when the witch murders his father in front of him and he's just like, why did you do that, you dumb bitch? Why would you, why would basically you just kill my that. dad? Yeah, he's like, why the fuck would you just kill my dad in front of me? bro it's not okay uh but she says like you would never understand and will is slowly having this love that is worth killing for question mark yeah but not Themes? killing the person you love question mark but yes okay well i can't help explain that that's, that's just part of Coleman's issues okay i guess that's well i mean i think the will I wouldn't do it. That's the path. The parallel, yeah. the parallel to that, the witch doing that, and and that sort of corrupted. Even though I I wouldn't call that love, but that corrupted possessiveness right. around love. The parallel is what Mrs. Coulter is doing to Lyra. Mm -hmm, exactly. Also, it's the idea that if you can't be with me, you can't be with anyone, which is a very negative and like. It's a very narrow-minded idea, obviously, and does not show healthy relationships. No. Does not show a healthy progression of an adult relationship. We see Baruch and Balthamos, yeah. aged gods here that are in love and respectful, even though they're different and they find, like, big differences in attitudes, right? Balthamos is a little crankier than Baruch. They work around that together and they complement each other well, where I think that the witch murdering his father is a very, like, a... Wow, what I learned not to do in Love 101. I know, right? And that's also like, I don't even know that they, you know, you're saying examples of unhealthy relationships. I don't know that they had one. You know, I think that witch just like slid yeah. into his DMs once and was like, I love you. And he's like, I don't know you. <laughs> I hope. I sure hope. Well, I prefer to subscribe to the TV adaptation version because it just fixed it all. Yeah. It was way better. Made more sense. I do love this world of the dead being used as a device especially with the introduction of Metatron and, of course, the lines about the prison being what's happening to the dead. Ending that chapter with this subconscious kind of place that Lyra and Roger are communicating, it ties in really nicely with Metatron and the layers of the heavens, especially after learning the world of the dead is a prison. The second book of Enoch, the Book of the Secrets of Enoch, explains multiple heavens and battles between angels and devils in heaven. So the first layer of heaven is just above the firmament, where angels control atmospheric phenomena like weather, which we know Philip Pullman loves to play with. The second layer, Enoch finds darkness, a prison where rebel angels specifically are tortured. Three, paradise and hell, with a garden of Eden guarded by angels and men being tortured as well. The fourth layer is the place where movements of the sun and moon happen, with a heavenly choir of soldier angels singing as well. The fifth layer of heaven is Grigori, the soldiers of Satan that looked like humans but were giants, almost like the Nephilim. Not yet condemned, in a state of limbo, Enoch convinces them to repent. 
The sixth layer of heaven are angels in charge of, of governing the cosmos and people. The archangels who measure life in heaven, earth, and who are appointed over seasons and years and the fruits of the earth. These angels write all the souls of men and their deeds. The eighth layer of heaven is below the upper firmament. Muzzleth lives here, the changer and mover of constellations. And the ninth layer of heaven is the upper firmament itself, where constellations and seasons are fixed. And finally, the tenth level is where God's throne resides and can be seen up close. I think these layers from the second book of Enoch are so important and that Pullman had to have been taking from a couple of these layers, especially with the prison where the people are in the underworld now versus the layers of paradise and hell and torturing outside of the Garden of Eden, as well as the prison where the rebel angels are tortured. Yeah, I, lo I love this. I love this description and how you talk about the different layers. And while I, I haven't read that the last book of the Divine Comedy. Or like the last part. Oh, it's good. Um, but I mean, even though this isn't like I guess exactly to some extent what we see, right? It, it's reminiscent of the different circles and layers, and Pullman is this is inspired by the Inferno, so the Divine Comedy in general, but probably. But anyway, yeah, you can kind of see how this becomes a with all these layers how it becomes a mountain after a while. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Well, let's close out this episode with chapter three, In the Mountains, Scavengers. This chapter opens with, The knight's bones are dust and his good sword rust. His soul is with the saints, I trust. S.T. Coleridge. Yeah, it's sad because it's about Lee. And he is a knight. He is. And you know, his good sword, his soul is with, I mean... We'll talk about that at some point. Um, He's one of the millions that died before Will's dad. So. Yep. Yep. So that's where his soul is right now. I mean, Roger's a saint. Yeah. Seraphina flies through the Arctic skies, weeping with rage and Mrs. Coulter and fear of what is happening to her land, but also remorse, which she would face later. And I know the reveal comes quick, like literally on the next page, but I do like the way that remorse is for this moment a question uh, before it is revealed. And all all in all, I, again, love the way the third book opens and how it's showing us all of the players across the world now, uh, where they are, what they're doing to get ready and in position as we, you know, get ready for that fight, the battle, or whatever. I do have to appreciate that she pushes her remorse aside because she knows she has a duty to leave right now, right? She can be sad and she can feel regretful later, but right now she has a duty. And she flies north over the melting ice caps until she reaches King Yorick Burnison's realm. She hardly recognizes his island. The mountains are bare, black, and the sun is out, with barely any snow on the ground. Nature had been overturned. She finds the bear king swimming after a walrus. Yes, yeah, so go get that hazelnut cream. You deserve it, Yorick. <laughs> sounds good. Sounds delish. There's this passage. It was harder for bears to kill in the water. When the land was covered in ice and the great sea mammals had to come up to breathe, the bears had the advantage of camouflage and their prey was out of its element. That was how things should be. Yeah, this is happening in <sighs> Thanks, real life. Thanks, Asriel. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a little jarring, so I'm just like, hmm. Shit. Hmm. 
Well, once Yorick has finished hunting, Seraphina flies down, laying her weapons down and requesting to speak with him. Because this is this is the thing that she feels remorseful about. Yeah, uh, she's very much so tiptoeing carefully about it, right? Big respect for her, because if I'm eating and you fly in with your arrow raised, I'm flipping my shit too. You know, I mean, that's only respectful. But there is something really interesting here in that he even says, he's like, Serafina, why are you acting so formal? We've never fought. You know, why Why are you being all, like, peaceful with me like this? What? I don't know. I think war times are tough. You can't trust everyone. And she's also being overly cautious because, you know, she's about to tell him his BFF is dead and that, like, she could have probably saved his best friend that's dead. But there's also just this certain amount of respect, whether for him as a king or just for who he is and how his people are and how they live and what's being taken away from them as she flies over and sees, you know, oh, wow, Asriel fucked this up real good. I think it's a little of all these columns. She's obviously so stricken with grief at seeing their home melted as well as stricken with grief for her boyfriend Leek dying. Yeah, and I mean, also, of course, she sees in some ways, I would say, a parallel of her own homelands being... You know, destroyed, destroyed as well. So it's a lot going on, right? Interesting. Oh, that's happening to them too. Well, shit. Um, and yeah, she just feels so bad that she's like, oh man, I really let this guy's best friend die, and and she's just hoping he's not going to be as mad at her as she is with herself, right? That's why she says that she's wretched with remorse at some point later on. Mm-hmm. And and I do like as you pointed out, York's like, I I don't understand what's going on. Like we've never had any beef, like. I don't think we do. Like, we're cool. Do, do we? Pacala. Do we? <laughs> we're cool, Something Pacala. Happened? We're cool. <laughs> cool cool as the other side of this iced rock. Wait, never mind. It's melting. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there's also a certain amount of parallel, right, to Will having just lost his father mm-hmm. and losing Lyra and having to carry on, even though these very big moral factors of his journey, right? Like, his whole journey was centered around finding his dad basically before and now that guidepost and lyra who's the other anchor in his journey are both gone uh and for seraphina obviously it's been a while since her mother passed away and since she had to take that ownership of her tribe of witches her coven uh but it it hasn't gotten any easier now she's lost a friend slash lover slash boyfriend question mark moving on glossing past that uh she's lost a friend in arms lee scoresby right and now she has to think of the best way to move on without these anchors to guide her. And that's kind of, that that's happening to Yorick too, right? You're drawing these parallels mm-hmm. and he has to find his best friend. He's just been reunited with this really good friend after many years. And, you know, you were talking about Seraphine having to take up the mantle of her mother's position. And that's what Yorick has had to do, right? He's finally been able to regain his position and now he's like, shit, I have a lot of responsibility, and also our home is melting. And this is just coming off of, what, a, quite a while, you know, maybe years of alcoholism and depression, as he couldn't figure out who he was and was semi-enslaved, you know? So, mm-hmm. and now yeah. his best friend's dead. Um, There's also that idea of waking up from, like, for Yorick especially, waking up from that fog of oppression, right? Mm-hmm. That people kept his armor from him to enslave him, basically, and keep him working 
for them and using his power mm-hmm. for what they wanted in their bidding. And uh, I think there's a big overarching feeling in the book of that, right? That this fog has lifted uh, off the people and they are going to rise up. All these people from different places, you know, the bears, the witches. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, York remains very still, as Seraphina explains, and she does tell him that there's a saxifrage blossom that she gave Lee to summon her with, but she unfortunately arrived too late, as he died fighting with the Muscovites, and again, she says she's <laughs> wretched with remorse. And then he's like, I-, I don't understand, I didn't read book two. And so Seraphina tells him everything about Stanislaus Grumman, <laughs> the barrier between the worlds, and then the global climate change, and Azrael, and then the angels, and Ruta Scotti, and, and preserving Lee's body from corruption. That didn't happen in book two, so you know, now she's catching up. And it will last until Yorick sees him, if he wishes to say goodbye to Lee. Yorick asks after Lyra, and Seraphina had left her with her sisters in the same world as Lee, which, you know, kind of sounds risky. And she explains that Yorick can get to that world from here, and he plans to go to Lee and then south. He's chartered a ship for his people to to go with him, and I'm like, well, I like I like the idea of the bear chartering a ship. That's fun. Somewhere <laughs> <laughs> better with food. I don't know, it's kind of cute, except for the part where their home's, like, terrible. But he's Destroyed. Like, he's destroyed, but the bear being like, all right, we're going to take a ship, everyone. Anyway, I do feel like there's 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 a slight threat here, k- kind of, from York when he asks after Lyra. He's like, all right, so I guess you let my best friend die, but what about my adopted daughter? <laughs> and then we're over here like, so about that. <laughs> she left her with her sisters. Uh, okay. I'm sure it's fine. It's fine. Things are fine. What's what's the worst that could happen? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> Seraphina says that her next move is to find the Egyptians and that they'll be needed. Yorick wishes her well and paddles off to the New World. Meanwhile, they're being spied on by three foxes of the Arctic, scavengers known for eavesdropping very poorly and playing Arctic telephone. It's actually kind of funny when <laughs> in the passage at the so end, funny. except for the part where it's really dark in a second, like when they die and get eaten, but they are really bad at it. It straight up reminds me of like some Jim Henson style dark crystal kind of like Muppetry, you know, and and the cliff ghasts are just as bad because they always believe the Arctic foxes, no matter what, they never learn. So the bears and witches are used to having their conversations scavenged and we'll come right back to them in a few. But first, we have some other stuff to do. Yorick is stepping into a burnt down forest. So, of course, the forest where Lee died. To find his friend. He had swam across into this new world. He could even taste the change in the water and temperature when he was swimming. He comes upon a slope of boulders and scrap metal from a machine and drags his claw on a less damaged piece of metal. He thinks it's flimsy and turns away, scanning the mountain. He finds a narrow gully and heads that way, stepping on and snapping dry bones from previously dead men as he goes. The boulder was pitted and chipped with bullet marks. Everything the witch had told him was true, and in confirmation, a little arctic flower, a purple saxifrage, blossomed improbably where the witch had planted it, as a signal in a cranny of the rock. Yorick Burnison moved around to the upper side. It was a good shelter from an enemy below, but not good enough, for among the hall of bullets that had chipped fragments off the rock had been a few that had found their targets and lay where they had come to rest, 
in the body of the man lying stiff in the shadow. He was a body still, not a skeleton, because the witch had laid a spell to preserve him from corruption. Yorick could see the face of his old comrade drawn and tight with the pain of his wounds, and see the jagged holes in his garments where the bullets had entered. The witch's spell didn't cover the blood that must have spilled, and insects and the sun and wind had dispersed it completely. Lee Scoresby looked not asleep, nor at peace. He looked as if he had died in battle, but he looked as if he knew that his fight had been successful. <laughs> Hurtful. Hurtful. It's very painful and beautiful. It is. The purple flower, the, the saxifrage, right? The arctic saxifrage, nonetheless. Like arctic bears. And the sight of Lee's body reminds me a little of, you know, when Greek gods and goddesses would, like, turn their favorite humans or lovers into flowers. Or not lovers. Sometimes they were reluctant. Um, anyway, into flowers to remember them as a way to sort of preserve them through memory. That's very interesting, like, that they're memorializing him almost as, you know... As a as a god amongst them for mm-hmm. his his sacrifices in battle, an honorary god, right? Because you have the witch and the bear, and their supernatural powers, and you had Lee Scoresby with his cowboy hat mm-hmm. and his Winchester, you know, that held the line, like York says. And Hester. it was a good shelter from above, but not below. Yes, and Hester who held out too. And I do, you know, we we went through a lot of different symbolism of the purple saxifrage in the very last subtle knife episode. Please go check that out if you want more. Uh, but I do love that like he's memorialized as a god among men. Yeah, and he's memorialized in other ways too, right? Because York yes. is about to ritualistically eat his best friend, feasting on his blood <laughs> and flesh. And he's thinking very complex thoughts as he eats. He thinks of... <laughs> As he eats, he thinks of Lyra, of the witches and alliances and pact and war, and the new world itself, and that everyone's fate hinges on Lyra's herself. Well, sh- I thank God, you know, thankfully Yorick Someone. fucking gets it, right? Because <laughs> no one else does. Uh. Anyway, but it, the this moment of memorialization, it is very ri- ritualistic, and I, I really find this to be a beautiful scene, that when... Yorick sees the body, right? He thinks of it as Lee's final gift. And the thoughts that Yorick has as he's devouring his friend, it kind of makes it feel like a meditation. Like some something like a prayer, right? And that's what adds to making it feel like a ritual. And we saw this really deep expression of love with Balthamos and Baruch, who were, you know, they were so sure that they were going to find each other again. You know, no matter what world each other was in. Baruch, who transformed into an angel to be with the one that he loved 4,000 years ago, changing into something different, a different form. And Lee is here, right, with his beloved best friend, Yorick. And Yorick has is so sure that no matter the world, he's going to find his friend again, right? He has crossed worlds in order to find Lee. And at the end, yes, he eats him. And the description of his hunger almost muddies it for a second, makes you think, well, is it really his gift or not? But when you think of what York has just gone through in order to find Lee, he's left his people for a moment just mm-hmm. to go on this pilgrimage to find this man who who has died for this mission, who has given up his safety, risked his life for him uh, many times, and who helped to bring him out of his depression and, and alcoholism and Yorick hasn't stopped to eat, 
right? This is a long-ass journey. He hasn't stopped to eat until he has found Lee, which kind of makes it in a way, it's almost a fast heading towards it too. Mm-hmm. And also because it would be rude, right, for him to delay knowing that his friend's body is waiting for him at the end. So he goes there in haste. And then at the end, he does become one with Lee. It's the sort of communion. And also, it, it reminds me a little of the way that the foray people in Papua New Guinea practiced cannibalism, right? Um, but it's not exactly like that because it's technically not cannibalism because Yorick's a bear and Lee's a human. They're different species. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I know this, right? He's a panzer bjorn, and but it kind does. Of. He's basically a human, okay, Aliana. Even though they say he's not, and so I'm like, I don't know, is he? Is he not? I don't know. It, it's it's real confusing for me sometimes. I'm like, it's a- maybe you're a bear. I could be. Um, <laughs> if you're a bear, I'm a bear. <laughs> well, it does go to show, though. I mean, like, so it's technically not cannibalism, but even. Even if it wouldn't be, again, he we perceive York as human, right? And the way that the foray people see cannibalism, like you consume your loved ones, there's a part of their spirit and maybe your their abilities, right? That will become part of you. And there's also an aspect of mm-hmm. uh, cleansing associated with it as well. And and I think what's happening here with York and Lee, it, it is really beautiful the way that York is approaching this and gives you a little bit of bear culture, you know, Panzerbjörn culture, that the spirit and the soul of your loved one become part of you when you consume them. And and we'll come back to this a little bit more in the discussion. But yeah, as Yorick consumes his friend, something else becomes part of Yorick as well, right? Not only is Lee being transformed into being Yorick, Yorick is taking on part of Lee's journey. And also this new mantle, right? Vengeance. Yeah, he's angry at the people who killed him, right? The magisterium, the authority for bringing their oppression and power down upon his friend who died pretty selflessly, right? Protecting people, giving someone a chance so that they could go ahead and help make the world better. And it does, of course, go, I mean, to say, like, we know Lee is one of the previous million people that died. Yeah. Which means he is in this prison camp, which means that so obviously Yorick, you know, wanted to respect his friend's soul and body and that in his mind, Lee couldn't be free until he ate his body. You know, like mm-hmm. Lee couldn't be able to go on to his afterlife in that way, it seems. That's part of it, too. And so Yorick, you know, made his way there to free him, but he's not free. Mm-mm. And that's obviously a big strand that needs to be closed in the story. And that's part of the vengeance, right? If he takes mm-hmm. part in this... Not intergalactic, interdimensional war. There we go. That's actually mm-hmm. technically correct. Interdimensional war. And does his part, it, it gives his friend a chance. Yeah. Well, then Yorick thinks of the melting ice and his hungry Panzerbjorn having to leave their home. And there's a line of, that reminds us that ice was their home, ice was their citadel. We had a huge emphasis on Metatron's citadel right, that follows him everywhere in the last chapter. And I'm really reminded that the Authority and Asriel and Metatron, they they have this power and these citadels that they can rise and move and construct out of nowhere. And it only comes at the cost of other people, right? Asriel causing the bears and others to become displaced from climate change. 
Uh, it, of course, has the very obvious parallels to these companies and corporations that are buying up all the natural resources and forcing people to subscribe to those assets or live a lesser, more difficult life. I just felt that the, the usage of Citadel here, much like, mm. you know, uh, a, di a city in an ancient Greek town or ancient Sparta, which had a Citadel, it, it just feels so emphasized, mm -hmm. especially in the wake of Asriel's Citadel rising. Interesting. Yeah. Ice is the bear's citadel. It is, it is. And, I mean, they have to find a new one, right, as, as it disappears. Mm -hmm. And it sucks, like, that they decided, alright, well, not only can we sacrifice this little boy's life, I guess we'll just sacrifice the entire lives and ecosystems, and that's gonna have, that has ramifications, you know? Absolutely. Ones we'll never know about. I'm just kidding, we might. Maybe in the books of dust. Yeah, we might. Well... <laughs> Yorick plans to explore the mountains that Lee Scoresby had once told him of, that were so high his balloon couldn't even fly over them, uh, to see if there might be a place for the Panzer Bjorn to live. And in some ways that is, again, continuing the journey his friend left off with the places that Lee could not go to explore. And is also, I mean, it's interesting, right? It's an idea. It's another gift that Lee has given him, the idea of where can his people mm -hmm. go. And so he finishes up the flesh and bone of his friend, and he's suddenly struck again with that anger and vengeance, feeling restless. The sun is setting on him as he finishes the parts that he will consume of Lee. And he lifts Seraphina's flower and drops it in the center of Lee's remains, as humans would do at a grave, so that Seraphina's <laughs> spell is broken and the rest is free now to be eaten by the other scavengers returning Lee's body to the earth. And speaking of the scavengers, let's go back to those foxes who are about to be eaten by a cliff gas. But first, first that fox is babbling. It, it's like this weird, like, twisted Muppet scene. You know, everyone's laughing. They're all laughing. It. Yeah, the cliff gas are totally laughing. Henson. The foxes are laughing. They're all giggling. You know, the cliff gas are like, ah, it's hilarious. The foxes I'm gonna eat get you. eaten and they're no longer laughing. Right. It's so, it's so, it's so weird. It's so I love weird. it. So the fox exclaims, Bear must go south. Witch is troubled. True. Swear. Promise. And the cliff gas doesn't believe his lying ass. And he's like, no. And then he's like, scores me dead. Dead. King Bear goes south. And then the cliff gas is like, ha ha ha. And he takes his head off and he eats him. Good gossip, though. It is quite the ending scene, to be honest. And it really, I, I think, is meant to contrast, right, what we see between in that scene with Yorick and Lee's body, you know, the cliff gas and the foxes can clearly communicate with one another, which gives them, I think, a, a sense of that humanity as well and evokes that idea that we were talking about of cannibalism and the repulsion that usually goes with it, even though, again, it's technically not cannibalism because they're different species. Um, but the irreverence with which the cliff gas just like sort of, they just tear the foxes apart live and then eat them. It, it, it really contrasts with the solemnity and the meditation that Yorick had when he was consuming Lee to show that it was this gesture of love and very civilized. And, you know, more than that, it, it's almost like eating knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Like tree of knowledge style, like the foxes are being eaten by I the am. cliff guests, which again... This is another little ecosystem, like you just spoke about all the ecosystems that are being destroyed and the ramifications that come from that. But this is one of the working ecosystems that has risen up in the face of that being destroyed over many, many years. That this is the way they found their lives work. The cliff guests learn stupid information from the foxes and then eat them. 
Ah. <sighs> well, we love to consume knowledge, but mm-hmm. that's not the end of the chapter because, of course, we have our Roger and Lyra hour going on because they're asleep. Well, one of them's asleep. The other one's the great sleep. <laughs> Jesus. Lyra begins in after having been cut off. They will come. They will. But where are you, Lyra? And that she couldn't answer. I think I'm dreaming, Roger, was all she could find to say. Behind the little boy, she could see more ghosts. Dozens. Hundreds. Their heads crowded together, peering close, listening to every word. And that woman? I hope she ain't dead. I hope she stays alive as long as ever she can. Because if she comes down here, there'll be nowhere to hide. She'll have us forever then. That's the only good thing I can see about being dead, that she ain't. Except I know she will be one day. Lyra was alarmed. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm dreaming, and I don't know where she is. She's somewhere near, and I can't... She is indeed near. Much closer than you expect. Maybe as close as you would expect, to be honest. Well, I will say, okay, this is my opinion. I think that this is kind of unfair of Roger. All right. Yes. All right. Like, yes, he should be afraid of Mrs. Coulter. She is terrifying, and she is the one who, like, initially kidnapped him. And I think that the show- trafficked him. Yeah, trafficked him, all those things. The show kind of shows a little bit more of, like, how that might be much more terrifying for Roger on, like, a longer scale. But I'm just, like- Mm -hmm. I don't know. Why is he only afraid of Mrs. Coulter, all right? He should be afraid of Lord Asriel, too. Not just that woman, all right? Because, yeah, she's she's terrifying. But the guy... But Asriel, like, killed you. Yeah, he's the one who actually went through with, like, tricking you, and then kidnapping you again, and then, yeah, separating you from your demon, which is, like, horrible. Like, like that's, like, the worst yeah. thing you can do to a person. And I'm like, yeah, Mrs. Coulter has done terrible things on a much larger scale, but not to you personally, Roger. You should be more afraid of Lord Asriel. You should be afraid of more people. <laughs> I will say, like... And I don't know that Pullman gave a shit about this, but I do wonder if it's like, I don't know, Sixth Sense style that like, he doesn't actually know kind of 100% how he died, if that makes sense. Like, he just knows that then he was gone. And like, obviously the logical thought is, Lord Azrael got you to sit in a cage and put your demon on the other side and there's a blade between you. Like, that's obviously very logical. We We know what that means, but... And I know Pullman doesn't really care about this conversation, but it does make me wonder, like, you know how, like, trauma, you know, maybe he died and his consciousness was severed and maybe he blocked out the trauma. Maybe. I mean, he knows, right? Because, like, he and Lyra were just careening down that hill and he knows that he was, his demon, Pan, they were all trying to fight, fight Selmaria and be like, let me go. And... So he would have recognized Asriel's soul as the soul that was killing him. But I, I think a part of it is like on a narrative level, it's playing up Mrs. Coulter, right? She's she's in many ways, mm-hmm. besides the two kids, the star of this story. Yeah. And you know, preparing us for the way that her character will develop. It is developing now. Yeah. There are big developments happening, big changes yeah. and As we get through the rest of the story, you are going to see and hear a lot of them. 
But for now, if you have not finished The Amber Spyglass. We are so sorry yeah. about yeah, what we have it, given it, you this, these, uh, these chapters. You need to log off. You need to go uh, take a nice, nice long nap. Have some hot cocoa. Some chocolate, sorry. Mm. Uh, feel good about yourself and uh, forget all about the sadness you encountered today. But if you have read The Amber Spyglass, and if you're interested in the outer works of Philip Pullman, like the Companion Trilogy, The Books of Dust, La Belle Sauvage, The Secret Commonwealth, or the novellas, the outer works of the novellas, feel free to stay tuned, listen in as we talk about our discussion where we talk about spoilery kind of topics existing past and beyond the amber spyglass yes some even before long before the amber spyglass with uh, la belle sauvage but we've given you enough time i think now if you haven't turned it yeah, off if you haven't tuned out now you're, this is it you're gonna hear the spoilers so. yeah wow wow not that this we've done like a good a very job heavy it's, yeah, right? <laughs> this is a heavy introduction to the story, these first three chapters. I don't remember them being so action-packed. Mm-hmm. This reread, I'm like, wow, lots happening. But there is definitely a lot that translates over into some of these other stories, right? Uh, Will looking at the fire with the angel on the very edge of his vision, being able to see him better. That stood out to me so much, and it reminded me of a couple things. It reminded me of Malcolm's light. Mm. That he sees coming out of his eyes in La Belle Sauvage, that oscillating migraine aura that he gets with no migraine, in a way, and how sometimes if he just squints right, he can see it coming out of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, and not just that, but also when Will is kind of using the knife uh, for that extended period of time, and he feels very dizzy while he's using it, and while he focuses on separating his body and mind while using it. That reminds me of Malcolm's Light as well, and also reminds me of the new method of alethiometer reading that gets introduced in The Secret Commonwealth for Lyra, and how it makes you feel. Mm, that's interesting, mm-hmm. and that there's a lot of power in that. Yeah, it does feel like foreshadowing too, in learning these different worlds with his knife and understanding the logistics. There's that line where he's like, he could see how you could get lost in these worlds forever, and it definitely feels like foreshadowing towards the end of the Amber Spyglass to what doesn't what happens if you don't close the windows. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, damn, he just... And granted, you know, it, it, it's... I guess there's one born every time you make a window. I'm like, damn, Will just made like a bazillion little specters. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Another side note, you know, within that same the same book of that mechanic of Will looking at the angel... In the edge of his vision it's very similar you know that state of relaxing and corner of the eye to the methodology that Safania uses to teach mary malone to see her demon and i guess anyone like in this world could theoretically use to see her demon and did i ever try it a lot when i was 13 maybe oh, of course <laughs> maybe did i try it last week of course no, yeah I'm I'm like maybe i'll see it <laughs> and on that same note Will is looking at the angel at the fire, which Balthamos is going to pretend to be his demon. So uh, true. he was seeing his temporary demon out of the corner of his eye. That is true. It also is interesting because it, it it doesn't work the way that I thought it would, right? I just assumed that John Perry went into Lyra's world and then suddenly was like, oh my god, it's my demon. And it doesn't work like that, I guess, for Will. 
No, not so much. Maybe because not yet. yeah, maybe because John Perry has probably done you know more more things, mm-hmm. and it's like oh, there we go. And you know, coming back to a lot of the things that happened in this chapter, right? And speaking of death and dust and and what it means to become one. Seeing an angel die and disappear into dust, you pointed that out earlier, and it's what we see happen to the demons. The demons also become dust and just sort of like sprinkle out into the universes. And that's what's going to mm-hmm. happen to Baruch and Balthamos. And like, Balthamos is pretty like semi jazz when it happens because he's like going to finally join Baruch. And of course, it's what happens to everyone else later on in the land of the dead when they're freed. And then folks like Adam just like start streaming out, right? They intertwine and become one. Uh, again, like Baruch and Balthamus do. But we also see it happen with Lee and Hester, right? As his spirit is finally reunited with his soul um, amongst mm-hmm. the stars. And it's what Will and Lyra promise to one another at the end of the book that one day when they die, that their atoms will find one another and join and be together forever across it's illegal for you to be speaking these words to me i don't have to hear them for like nine months (laughs) ten months i don't know why you're saying this because it's the summer solstice this is like being attacked it is like you were like attacking me this is like mercury retrograde has only been over for like one day aliana could you be nice holy shit no we can't we gotta we gotta go (sighs) and 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 i'm leading up to you know it's on a literal level it's the same as what Yorick and Lee, like what happens here, right? Yeah. The, it's the intermingling. Their atoms are becoming one in this much more visceral manner, right? As opposed to becoming dust, but it's the same thing. Becoming. Yeah. For Yorick and Lee, Yorick is consuming Lee's entire, you know, blood and bones and gristle and skin. And for Will and Lyra, they kissed that one time, Pullman said. Anyway, moving on. But- <laughs> so devastating. <laughs> so salty. Uh, just let them be together now, you know, in the future. Just let Heartful. it happen. Heartful. Come on. Come on, Philip. You know, Pullman's love of dystopia and end times illustrating uh, just the rot of what's wrong with the world is one of my favorite things. Mm-hmm. He goes so heavy into it. And we get that moment where Will opens up that industrial world with chained, sullen factory workers, uh, which, again, as you and I both mentioned, Kind of seems realistic. Doesn't seem like a fake world. <laughs> yeah. Okay. He had this one in La Belle Sauvage that's similar. Then he looked the other way, across the little river, high enough in the tree to see over the top of the fog bank, ah. which only extended upwards for a few feet, as he now discovered. Beyond it, he saw a desolation. A wilderness of broken buildings, burned houses, heaps of rubble, crude shanties made of shattered plywood and tar paper, coils of rusty barbed wire, Puddles of filthy water whose surfaces gleamed with the toxic shimmer of chemical waste, where children with sores on their arms and legs were throwing stones at a dog tied to a post. Uh, of course, we have that Chitagatse imagery coming back yes. in of those children throwing things at the cat. But here in La Belle Sauvage, uh, he once more revisits that idea. And Pullman is a total, like, super greeny. Like, he's all about recycle, reuse, save the fucking world. And he kind of sees that as one of the... Yeah, absolutely. And he sees that as kind of the end-all, be-all of how to save our world, right? Like, that's what's left. We can save it, but we all have to pitch in and pitch in fast. And it really shows when he highlights things like this throughout the books. Yeah. I wonder if that'll come back. That's a great point. That is is probably actually the exact same world that they see. (laughs) Our world. 
Yeah, I'm like, eh. reminds me a little of um in the first Full Metal Alchemist anime, not the one that's closer to the manga. Yeah, remember when they find out that oh yeah, actually turns out alchemy's powered by uh, all the death and destruction in the other world, oh, <laughs> and oh, and yeah. you go to like World War One. I'm like, oh okay, word. <laughs> well, um, on a lighter note, but only kind of lighter. Not, things don't get that much lighter in this book. So the mint thingy, the Kendall mint cake. Um, Will offering a little bit to Balthamos, the fallen angel, right? Who's already fallen for a human. And that taste of sweetness, it, it's reminiscent of the taste of the marzipan with Mary. And the for, it kind of feels like foreshadowing of Will offering that like berry to Lyra. And that act of... That act that leads to dust coming back the taste of the fruit of knowledge yes honestly balthamos and baruch feel like the ultimate setup uh for the heartache of will and lyra that was if you did not notice us illustrating that as quietly as we could without spoiling the end of the book we're not very good at that i'm very sorry you know i think you guys should know better by now (laughs) <laughs> you've been, if you're here you've probably been with us the last two books so you know better you've probably already but read the last book by now if you probably. started it if you started this when we started it we took a break we took a break but it, it, it break. does feel time. like their whole relationship is you know baruch and balthamos baruch lost against the stars balthamos longingly staring up at the stars wondering when baruch will come back yeah yeah painful it's it's just the the pre-illustration of Will and Lyra. Yeah. Speaking of flying things. I love when the foxes are talking about the flying things, right? Turns out, uh... Yes! And they're like, the angel with the crystal treasure! <laughs> it's just not... Everything sounds like it might be nonsense, but we can piece it together. And on a reread, you can kind of tell that that's... That's what Baruch and Balthamos won't tell Will, right? That's the secret. It's the crystal treasure... Inside the, the cloud authority. mountain. Yeah, it's the authority. He's so frail now that he has to be encased. And later on, Will and Lyra are going to be like, oh no, we have to free him. <laughs> and that's actually how she kills him. <laughs> it's so sweet. Oops. Uh, She's like, oh oops. no, that old man died. Um, it's so sad. Alexa, play Despacito. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, well, and then... See, Siri, show me the child slavery in your factories. Oh my god. So la- last what? side note, last side note about sad kids, though. Uh, Roger does get his wish, right? Mrs. Coulter never ends up going to the land of the dead amongst them. And her atoms will actually likely never really join the others because she's just going to fall forever in that abyss. Oh, well, I'm glad your wish came true, Roger. Congratulations, Roger. And you know what? Good for you, Roger, because even though you weren't afraid of him, it's the same thing for Lord Asriel, all right? He's not going to be able to yeah. get you either. Equality won, even if you didn't want it to, Roger. <laughs> you know, it does remind me, the Land of the Dead just reminds me of Korra. And I'm just, like, waiting to see Mrs. Coulter shrouded by fog, just talking to herself in the Land of the Dead in my head, uh. you know? Uh, just like Korra sees, uh, well, Tenzin and everybody, they have to link together and not get lost in it. And I don't know, I just think of the Korra Land of the Dead whenever I think of Amber Spyglass Land of the Dead. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Well, that's that for a first episode, I'd say. I this think is a uh, lot. this was a big one. This was a big chunk, and 
hopefully we'll be back in about a month to cover another couple chapters or so. Yeah, you guys got a jam-packed... I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot to kick this off and a lot of feelings to be had. But, you know, if you have feelings that you want to let us know about, you can feel free to send us a tweet on Twitter at girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N, or perhaps you would like to send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yes, and if you are not already following us or subscribed to us on a podcast streaming platform near you, make sure you get onto your favorite one and you click follow. We're on so many. We are on Podbean, where we're hosted, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Acast, Audible, Amazon, you name it, we're there. iHeartRadio. Look it up. And of course, we are also on Patreon. You can subscribe to us on Patreon where we have an RSS feed and this month's bonus episode for patrons $5 and up, Stranger Tier and Above, is going to be a His Dark Materials themed episode about the novella The Collectors. It's not a novella, yeah, it's actually really short, it's the short story, The Collectors. Sorry, everyone. Yeah, I guess it's a short story. I'm really excited, but yeah, the ebook itself goes to 60 pages. I want to say it's like a half hour on Audible, if you guys have a credit you want to use for the collectors. So go listen to it. It'll be out hopefully later this week for patrons in that $5 and above tier over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. No, I go first this time. Oh, <laughs> my God. Balthamos, you're so pushy. Fine. I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Goodbye. <laughs> Talk to you guys next month.